0: Welcome to the Film Seekers Podcast. Mainstream, art house, vintage and documentaries. We bring news and reviews of big screen productions to your earbuds. We seek films. Now relax and enjoy the show.
1: So, uh, we are at number 11 this week, and we will be talking about the undead when we look at The Girl with All the Gifts. And our special guests, Carrie Lynn Evans, will be joining us for the usual shenanigans, including the film news, the UK box office top 10, and much more. This is the Film Seekers Podcast. Bonjour, bonsoir. It is me, Neil Ramsey, behind the controls today. And as I said, I am joined by a very special guest, Carrie Lynn Evans, all the way over from Over the Pond. Hello, Carrie Lynn salut bonjour oh bonjour! we bring the french <laughs> with us tonight Excellent. a little bit i'm a bit of an imposter but yeah <laughs> um caroline tell everyone about what you do what's your speciality what you're going to bring to today's podcast on the zombie in inverted commas film the girl with all the gifts
2: Yeah, so um, currently my number one gig is I'm a PhD student with Université Laval in Quebec City. Um, I'm studying uh, English literature with a focus on speculative fiction and critical theory, postmodern weird stuff. I like that kind of thing. Um, Yeah, so I also have a couple of side gigs. I do another podcast called uh, New Books in Secularism. If you are interested in academic publishings uh the, the entire network interviews authors of scholarly books uh, on a number of different channels that focus on different topics so it's a great way to like get exposure to a lot of different ideas very quickly so i host the secularism channel over there and i do some other odds and ends okay. piecing together my life but yeah that's pretty much
1: it that's pretty awesome and it's interesting how um you bring, you, you analyze story aspects and i i guess film is is based on story you know that that is how a picture is made up it is a sequence of pictures or slides or still images or moving images that make up a story and i guess that you'll be able to analyze the story side for me today
2: yeah that's right so as we were talking about earlier um i have another friend uh jason who got me into analyzing film at a deeper level uh because i realized that like you say uh films have Uh, oftentimes the really good ones, just like the really good books, uh, bring just as much in terms of depth and metaphor and underlying meaning that that you can tease out of the story, Uh, just like with literature. And even other genres these days, it's opening wide up to uh, graphic novels, and there's people out there that analyze uh, the narratives of video games. It's a really exciting time, really, to be doing this kind of work, especially uh, I I tend to look at um, contemporary stories. Uh, with science fiction and whatnot. So yeah, fun topic.
1: Excellent. So we're going to actually introduce some of that stuff in today anyway. So we're going to be talking about science fiction in in, in a little more moment as we get into our news. Let's crack on with that. Number one in our news for this week is uh, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs and cultural appropriation. And it seems to be another one of these contentious issues that comes up now and again in the film world where usually white men, Uh, take on a a subject that's possibly a bit beyond them and then come out the other side looking a bit shamefaced so this is wes anderson's latest film uh uh, called the isle of dogs which is based on a novel or a source that he wrote together with one of his co-collaborators jason schwartzman and basically the idea is that a load of dogs are taken off the island of japan and taken to uh, a rubbish dump essentially and a young boy goes in search of his lost dog on the island of dogs all the dogs are supposed to be japanese i guess if they've been taken off the island uh, one of the japanese islands and dumped elsewhere uh, but they're all voiced by american actors interestingly enough and then obviously there are some huge notes of japanese culture in there including sushi and sumo wrestlers and cherry blossoms and all the things that you would stereotypically may associate with japan uh, what are your thoughts on this carrie lynn
2: Well, I'll start by saying that the whole topic of cultural appropriation is a bit of a minefield in a gray zone, just because it's really difficult to pin down. And I think it's one of these cases where you have to evaluate uh, examples on a case by case basis, kind of similarly to the way feminism can be a bit of a minefield. It's easy to misunderstand. If you try to see it as too black and white, it's very easy to misunderstand. So in the case of this movie, there's definitely red flags. Absolutely. I would be a little forgiving and I'll, I'll get into the details of why. I think I think it's a mixed bag in terms of making OK choices and going about this story in an OK way. Mm-hmm. And then also kind of pie on the face, making some poor choices as well. Uh, I think when it comes to cu- cultural appropriation in general, it really comes down to um, tone, uh, intention and context. Right. And and so just in case your audience is not necessarily familiar with the term outside of just like social justice warrior posts and whatnot, um, a good example of cultural appropriation would be, say, um, a few decades ago in the United States, when black women were getting a lot of flack for their, their natural hair and doing their hair naturally. Okay. Uh, and so they might be insulted or um, denigrated for having an Afro with just kind of their natural Hair thing going on. And then, in that very same context, the very same types of white people styling their hair in afros and celebrating each other white people with their white froze. So there you can see like, hmm, we've <laughs> got, yeah, like that's a major problem, but that's a real life example of cultural appropriation. And you can pretty clearly see why it's a negative thing. But again, it comes down to intention and mm-hmm. tone. And it really also comes down to whether you're celebrating a culture uh, and giving them credit or, or if you're really not. And so in the case of the, the language of the dogs in this story, Yes, I think it's. I think it's an okay, maybe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's kind of a cool narrative device to set it up where, um, because dogs don't understand humans, so that's kind of the idea. I think is that the humans are speaking their native Japanese, and it's intended for a white audience, I assume. And so they don't understand the Japanese just like the dogs wouldn't and the dogs speak uh, English. So it's not necessarily bad all by itself. One of the first things I looked for when I was researching uh, this film is uh, whether or not there was any Japanese consultation on the film. Yeah. And you probably noticed that there was, right? Yes, there uh, was, yeah. yeah, The fr- this friend of Wes Anderson, Kunichi Nomura, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So he, he was brought on as a consultant and an interpreter of Japanese culture. So that right there is already taking a right step on Wes Anderson's part. He's cuz a lot of these cases of cultural appropriation the problem is that nobody's consulted, right? White people or or men will just assume that they can tell somebody else's story, take on their voice, do it for them and they never ask anybody about it.
1: Sure, but and, but having one friend consult on on something oh, it surely doesn't give oh, you a I free agree. pass.
2: No, I do agree. It's not it's not a pass at all. It's just like, okay, well at least you did that. And then with the clichés, one of the reviewers mentioned the fact that the the sushi was very lovingly rendered. So you could make the argument that this is an homage to Japanese culture. I think some of the other things could be interpreted that way. Does that make it totally okay? I don't know. Um Mm, but, but, sh- but
1: then then i suppose we go down the rabbit hole of well can you not um emulate or uh, describe other cultures other than your own without uh, being under scrutiny by that culture themselves so can i not um you know write a novel or make a film about american culture because i am british or- see this
2: is exactly the thing yeah like it, it does that mean that i can only ever write about canadian culture ever sure. because i'm canadian so that's a problem too i Absolutely. totally agree
1: yeah well I I don't know what the Japanese reaction is to this film. I think it's yet to open over there as typically American uh, or English language based films tend to open quite late over in Japan. I think they're like usually one of the last regions to get it apart from in the case of, I think it was Kill Bill managed to, they managed to get it first because Hmm. Quentin Tarantino was making that film as an homage to Japanese culture and their uh, Japanese cinema, so they they got that okay. plus plus a load of other stuff on top of that, which was awesome for them. But yeah, this film I don't think has played over there. It'll be really interesting to see if audiences kind of take to that because there are Japanese names in there. There's uh, Ken Watanabe and uh, Yoko Ono as well doing voices. And if you <laughs> which think...
2: side of the fence does Yoko Ono end up on? I'm not sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's 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 also a very good point. And and the, the, the i guess the daftness about it is as you said dogs inherently don't have a language that is Fixed to any particular region uh, that we know of, you know. That I'm sure there may be some regional Japanese dog language that dogs speak to each other. And uh, but would you rather watch a film that was dogs barking and and subtitled underneath? Of course oh, not. Oh, that
2: would drive me nuts. Yeah, no. <laughs>
1: of course not, because you know, the they the, as part of them being characters, you want them to be fleshed out, so slightly nuanced. Uh, you want them to have depth, and and getting these big Hollywood names in there like Brian Cranston and Fisher Stevens for all his uh, faults with uh, Johnny Five appropriation. and Edward
2: Norton, Ed I think. Edward
1: Norton, Bill Murray, yeah. Scarlett Hansen. No, it's a smorgasbord of really big names in there. And ultimately those things drive people to the cinema to go and watch it. You're not going to watch a film by Wes Anderson necessarily. If you're just an average movie goer, if you haven't heard of some of the cast, at least if it was all native Japanese speakers, most big commercial audience goings, you you wouldn't go to the cinema to, to go and watch that. If you, if you hadn't really invested in it, you want to see big names and it, it is a commercial decision to have Hollywood names in there to attract people. And hence why, Wes Anderson is able to make films like this, you know, off the wall stop motion animation films about dogs in
2: Japan. That attitude does need to be pushed back against, though, because that's part of the reason why you have whitewashing in Hollywood, right? Where they say uh, less so now, but it still happens. Um, the idea that, well, I, you know, I've got this role; it's a, it, the character is insert a non-white person in this blank, mm. and then they hire a white person to do it anyway uh, with makeup or however they want to do it, and they say, well, you. You know but it's got, we got to have the big names to bring people in and mm-hmm. and that just it's a it's it's an environment that just is self reinforcing. Uh, if you, I think audiences will go to see a compelling story, they'll go to see a compelling looking movie, and to just say, "Well, we can only ever hire white people, we can only ever hire the names people are comfortable with," is a cop out. I think it's, it's you have to find a balance. Clearly, I'm not saying that you have to make movies with uh, no names. I, yeah. I understand the draw of a star, but um, I don't know. I think
1: uh, I, I think, and I agree with you, but I I, I think society as a whole is certainly Western society is quite away from that uh, yet no one is really out there there are smaller films and smaller studios and there are some crusaders uh, within the business and you know this this falls into television as well and stuff we consume via the internet uh, other mediums like that there there, there are small pockets of people that are making change but as a whole the ball is rolling but it's not really snowballing into something huge as of yet, you know we've we've got the oscars so white and other um sorts of activism going on within the the film and television world if you're making an an american film and had japan uh, and had asian american stars in it but they weren't they were playing white people would would that would that make a a difference to you i i I don't know i think it can go one way and, and doesn't go back the other if you know what i mean um people seem to be um if you're of a a race or or a certain gender or uh, a certain sexuality you, you you tend to be used for that rather than just being a person within a narrative um which can benefit it or 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 denigrate from it depending on your point of view and i I wish i wish it wasn't that way i wish you know you could have a transsexual uh, asian american in a situation uh, and and them not being used just because that's their persuasion if you see what i mean
2: I, I, i do see what you mean i think we're making progress though i would agree that progress happens very very slowly people have um embedded ingrained ideas and and they're not going to change overnight or the, it may take genera- generational change to be able to update some of those ideas the problem with exactly what you're saying is that we see white men as being the blank slate mm-hmm. neutral mm-hmm. so if you have if you just bring up a blank slate of a character yeah not asian not transsexual none of those extra adjectives then what is that character white male Just automatically and and i think that's that's part of the problem that feminists have raised in the past is that we need to just totally shake the etch-a-sketch and restart and we need to recognize that white male is descriptors it's not a blank slate just like um asian female can be a blank slate for a story as well she can have a story that has nothing to do with being asian or female and so that's the place where we need to get to eventually Mm -hmm. um but I agree. Ch- cultural change takes a long time, so
1: it does. It does, and um, long may that continue. And hopefully, yeah. <laughs> and hopefully, we won't have to have conversations around whether uh, the Isle of Dogs is whitewashed or any other film uh, because it will be seen on its own merits and it will become part of everyday life, uh, which will be a lovely thing. And moving on to our next. Point of call in the news, which is faith-based films. Now, this seems to have become a genre in itself in the last five years. Faith-based films tend to be quite popular in uh, the USA. Uh, uh, Carolyn, are they quite popular over in Canada? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, what what is what is the the take of religion over where you where you are at the moment? It's Quebec, isn't it? So, what what what? Yeah. What's the take there in terms Quebec, of Quebec? Yeah,
2: yeah. Quebec is traditionally Catholic. Um, we have some parallels else to Ireland. Well, we have a lot of Irish immigrants, actually, okay. in that um, we had some really heavy, strict Catholicism um, up until recently when people threw off the yoke, essentially. Uh, in Quebec, it was called the Quiet Revolution, um, when people just said, we've had enough of this, because the church was involved in people's lives in a negative way, uh, controlling, judgmental, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, and uh, especially Catholicism with the way they tell you how to family plan etc and they so they don't
1: family plan right that's that's how
2: they don't plan. want you to family plan oh, yes okay. that's kind of what I was getting to yeah <laughs> um, so uh, so Quebec is very secular um, Canada in general is very secular however strangely enough I've actually met more religious friendly people here than I've have when I've lived in other parts of Canada so I'm not really sure what that's about but uh, on the whole Quebec has become wary of religion just distrustful of religion but I have never in my life in Canada, seen a Christian movie come to a public theater, for example. Uh, churches are smaller. Like in the States, there's the phenomenon of the megachurch, um, which if your British audience has never heard of it. No, it's, I've
1: never heard of it.
2: Oh, my God. Um, excuse me. Um, these, things are, <laughs> these things are like malls with um, congregations that range in the tens of thousands. And oftentimes these massive, um, professionally done with pyrotex, pyrotechnics and you name it, these, these, um, uh, Sunday morning services and whatnot will be professionally filmed so that you can watch from home or watch on the internet later or buy their products. And there's, like I say, a, an adjoining mall that sells um, anything you want, basically that's associated with you know Christian knickknacks. So, and so it's music a, a
1: commercialization and... like an industry oh, in itself? Yes,
2: yes. This is this is Christianity on American steroids. So, um, and yeah. How, and so- how does that
1: differ from evangelism, for example? Because that, that's quite. I'm Steeped in commercial sort of exploitation, some may say, of the the Christian religion.
2: Yeah, that's a Venn diagram that overlaps quite a lot, Um, and I think that these movies uh, that you're pointing to and the increase in these movies is a couple of things. One, it's the just this growth of commercial Christianity, Mm -hmm. Uh, and two, it's the internet. I think um, because the internet allows smaller groups, smaller uh, budgets to be able to bring media to other people. It's a it's a wide open platform, which is how we're doing this podcast. Now, right? Um, And so between the two things, it's just created an environment, I think, where it's one more product to sell Christians, is really what it is. I'm so glad that this news topic came up when I was speaking with you. Because of my interest in secularism and the whole atheist versus Christian and religion debate, I follow some of this stuff just kind of in morbid curiosity. And uh, I want to give a shout out to a podcast that I really enjoy. Um, Three guys down in the States do it, Um, they call it uh, God Awful movies, and what they do um, is they watch these Christian movies, and they um, critique them, and they're really funny. The point, they do a couple other podcasts, and they're really funny guys, so it's like a comedy podcast. So they, they critique these movies, they laugh at them, but... And it's funny to laugh along with them and kind of, but you know, you, you don't make fun of a movie because it's got a small budget and because the actors are really amateurish and the lighting will be amateurish, the sound will be amateurish. Mm-hmm. The bottom line with with a lot of these movies is that the messages are just the sort of thing that you and I on the outside would not expect, and they're not healthy. So I thought I would give uh, one example. Okay. Christian movie that I'm familiar with through this podcast, and it was one One of the ones in your notes that you mentioned, because in 2015, it earned uh, 67.8 million. So I think it's one of the ones that they point to that's more um, successful. It's called War Room. I'll give you a real brief rundown of the plot. Uh, It's about a woman. It's an African-American woman and her husband. They are having, you know, usual couple issues, maybe money, maybe I don't know what they're arguing. So he hits her. So she's upset about that. So she goes to talk to her pastor, and she meets this lady up the road, this older black lady. So already, there's a trope that keeps coming up in these Christian movies over and over and over, which is The Magical Black Lady, which has, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it has its roots in American um, racism. It's not necessarily a really negative or insulting stereotype, but it's just this magical black lady character is always popping up, and she's always got the wise words. Anyways, so she goes up the street to The Magical Black Lady, Mm. and she tells her that what you need to do for your marriage is pray harder, and the message that kind of comes through is that your husband hits you because you're not praying hard enough. Hmm. You're not submissive enough. Something's wrong with you. This guy doesn't need counseling. He doesn't, she doesn't need to go to the police. She doesn't, none of these th- steps even are brought up or addressed in the entire movie. And it's all about this relationship she cultivates with the older black woman who sets up a closet in her home as a prayer sanctuary. This is the war room in the title. Basically, The movie suggests that the resolution of the film is the fact that this woman who has gotten beaten has resolved herself that she just needs to work on herself and her prayer
1: right and, and it's, like that. It, that, that is just ridiculous in itself though surely you've got domestic violence there and, and essentially what it is, is is almost victim shaming and victim blaming is, is it not uh, yes
2: and this message of the wife has to be obedient and if he's mad at you it might be because you said something wrong i mean the the negative message and this movie does not stand alone this kind of stuff comes up all the time and it's not just about women and wives and subservience there's there's other like there was another one they did about um a a girl who was raped and had the baby and started visiting her rapist in jail, convinced Mm. the rapist to become Christian with her, and they ended up getting together. No. Yeah, I'm serious. So, I mean, some of these, and then other ones are, are, there's a lot of just subtle racism, because they don't even realize they're racist oftentimes. Mm. You know, like this one about they wanted to convert the family of Jews down the street. They wanted to bring the Jews to Jesus. Like, what? What? (laughs) Uh, What? then, then there's the other ones that are just utterly ridiculous and there's the persecution fantasy ones and the ones that go on and on imagining the rapture and uh, it's but it's there, a there is holiday. clearly
1: an audience for all of this though and they are yeah. they are visiting their local theaters in droves you know the war room didn't make 67.8 million by a couple of people coming to watch it they are a captive audience and in a industry such as film uh, which tends to be quite left-wing and slightly liberal yeah kind of alienates anyone that doesn't follow those those lines maybe even slightly conservative or you know has faith because quite often liberal cinema it's atheist leaning basically isn't it most cinema is and for them to have a voice that speaks to them surely you know whether we agree with their religion or not is a good thing that it kind of speaks to them and whether and what you know these horror stories of plots that you've just described yeah morally uh that there is obviously issues with those but i think th- those are the, the the far end of the scale there are some other films in there that uh, are less on the nose with you must do this to appease your gods so i'm trying to think of a couple that i've sort of passed over the reason we're talking about this is that a christian drama called i can only imagine came out starring dennis quaid big name it's not often it's not often you've seen big names doing these faith-based films and that can obviously draw quite a big audience. It made more money on its opening weekend than the uh, Wrinkle in Time film by Ava DuVernay hmm. <laughs> on on the basis that these people came out, supported it. Last year, we had The Shack over in the UK, another, uh, another faith-based film. It was huge in the States. And I know that once again, huge audiences went out to go and see that film. And if we talk about the ones that have more universal appeal. So uh, we had Mary Magdalene a couple of weeks ago uh, with Rooney Mara and uh, Wackin' Phoenix as Jesus. Um, We have films like The Passion of the Christ, uh, which didn't just appeal to the Christian market but had an overarching sort of effect where.
2: That, That one's a bit of an anomaly, I would argue. Okay. Just a little bit because uh, of Mel Gibson and how much of a torture fest that movie was. I think it's a little bit off on its own, and it was kind of produced and made like a typical, or you know, more along the lines of a Hollywood action movie with all the blood and the gore. Okay, but
1: but the, just the, suggesting, I, 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 I do, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I get where you're coming from, but uh, there are other films like uh, Jesus from Montreal. How how ap- Don't know that one. You don't know it okay so (laughs) no i
2: don't actually (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure you could get
1: me to sit down and watch any of these to be honest jesus of montreal is actually very very good um it's it's a little bit more sort of on the lines of the passion of the christ but i guess less of a a torture fest as as you said it's more reflective it's um I'm not going to say any more than that because I think it's a really okay. good one for someone to go away and watch. It's, it's There is some depth to it and some texture and there's much more than just a, a hallmark inspirational tale, which often some of these faith-based films are. And I think that can be a good thing because, you know, we all go to the cinema to have an emotion or have a reaction to something some people go to cinema to feel better about themselves some people you know this escapism that we use by going to watch things these audiences are going to have their faith reinvigorated and have a little shot in the arm I think it's really good for them and and no matter what you or I in our religious stances may think of that in terms of the actual religion itself I think it's really good that some people find solace and and comfort in something that reaffirms something that they really believe in is, is that not the case
2: well yeah i see it a little differently and i mean mm. it really come it comes down to where you're coming from on this um okay i i guess i have a cynical view uh of the evangelical movement especially in america just because of their particular brand Mm -hmm. of christianity i mean the evangelicals are the biggest base that donald trump has for instance so the kind of hypocrisy and single-mindedness in that case they they uh they're willing to overlook everything trump does for the usually it's it comes down to the goal of getting abortion outlawed Uh, and this kind of thing. And so the hypocrisy that's wound up in that. So another uh, aspect that makes me a little bit cynical about the evangelical group in the United States is the phenomenon of the megachurch, which uh, usually has a congregation in the tens of thousands. They're often the size of small malls. They've commercialized every aspect of the church so that they have stores. It's literally a small mall. They have stores that sell you everything you can imagine. You can purchase copies of their... Uh, Sunday services on DVD, and buy a subscription to their streaming service or whatever. Right, the leaders of these churches are often quite wealthy. It's mm, it's just hard to to not get cynical when you when you view it through that lens. And these movies. I see as being part of that, part of that culture. And so you're right, if there's people out there that feel like they can't see a Hollywood movie because it offends their sensibilities and this gives them an outlet to go for a night in the movies and feel good, you're right. When it's like that, then it's not causing any harm, necessarily.
1: No, but, 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 surely as an atheist, though, I mean, I would be tempted to, to sit and, and watch some of these films um, because... I can still see how that, inspires other people despite the fact that i don't follow that religion i'm not saying that there's, there's some of the horror stories and the plots that you've explained earlier would be something that particularly appeals to me but some of those these films aren't as um, obvious as that and and they are literally finding faith in something you know a spirituality of sorts rather than a religion and i can understand i can well i can empathize with a, a spirituality more than following a, a fixed religion and i understand where your cynicism comes from looking at the commerciality of these mega churches and the X- from that angle but I do think that sometimes when I step back and look and go well that's making them happy and I can see why we can really get behind this and come out of it on the other side reaffirmed and believing in something not necessarily the religion itself but believing in humanity and the spirit of humanity or something like You're that. You're
2: really reaching now I though. am slightly <laughs>
1: reaching yeah. and
2: I guess it, it comes down to philosophy too. Sure. Um, I, I st- grew up in a heavily Christian environment and uh-huh. I ended up becoming an atheist myself through that so my personal perspective hmm. which you know other people may have valid other perspectives than this but my personal perspective is that it's better knowing the truth than deluding yourself about a fiction so for me I, I don't really see it as a good thing when people just comfort themselves with a lie you know like children grow up and they realize Santa Claus isn't real Um, we don't all try to put ourselves back into the child's mindset that the world is really a better place with Santa so let's just go ahead and believe in him but that's my particular philosophy on life and I don't expect everybody to share that so
1: Mm -hmm. I'm I'm, I'm very similar so I I grew up in a household that was a casual Hindu household um, at school I was taught Christianity um, and had that rammed down my throat day in, day out, singing hymns and whatnot all the time.
2: Yeah, Parents were yeah. pretty
1: lax about the Hindu stuff, which is awesome. And I took, kind of took a bit from everything and kind of understood at a very early age that these this isn't to be meant to be taken literally. These are kind of tenements to how to live your life. And I can take a bit of this, I take a bit of Buddhism, take a bit of Islam. And this is basically kind of good ways to... to to go about your business. And so so eventually I got to shunning it and let people get on with it. So my parents, they're not, they don't force me to go to things and they still, class themselves as uh, Hindus, but in the same way that a lot of people in, in the UK class themselves as Christians uh, or C of E, they don't go to church every week. They just kind of celebrate Easter with a chocolate egg and do the whole present giving at Christmas and use it as an excuse for a get together and a gathering. Because I take it you celebrate Christmas as well?
2: Yeah, in oh. just the most token ways, you know, with the with the gifts and the tree, I do not go to church under any circumstance, okay. not for Easter, not for Eve. Nothing. I have to admit, becoming a parent really takes the joy out of Christmas because there's so much pressure mm-hmm. to pr- to produce and to perform and to make Chris- to make Christmas meet expectations. And when you don't have a lot of money, it, it can become just about that. You know, um. So uh, and now with with the family spread out so far between both myself and my husband, the obligations not only to children but to you know see all the disparate family members. Oh, anyways, don't get me going on (laughs) Christmas. I do love the tree and the idea. I love the bacon. So you do
1: like the idea of the the get together and the coming together once a year. You know, we'll all celebrate life or, or celebrate the joy of being alive together in this moment
2: of course I'm not joyless but there's nothing that needs to be <laughs> religious about that right the The, the winter Christmas holiday predates Christianity of yes, course Yes, it's pain, um, isn't it? so yeah and um, which you know isn't a big secret everybody knows that but it's really about the significance you place into those things right so for me it is about celebrating uh, family and the traditions that we do when we get together and Mariah Carey's Christmas album (laughs) and you know (laughs) that's where I draw the line (laughs) okay fair enough that's an ongoing debate yeah
1: (sighs) Uh, but that's really cool and I guess I have a similar take on these faith-based films so while I don't follow the religion, I'm going to watch a film about a story that's going to be uplifting. And whether there's a okay. undercurrent there of you must pray 10 times a day to this deity and you will be let into the gates of heaven when you die, fine. As long as it's not too on the nose... I'm okay yeah. with that, and okay. I, I can take inspiration from that, and I, okay. I, I, and I welcome that to an extent, you know, and f- not necessarily just from Christianity, which is obviously the the primary driver uh, behind this. You know, Dennis Quaid's new film is a Christian based film, and we've got God's Not Dead Part Three, which is this mm-hmm. ongoing saga that seems to have caught an audience. It's not <laughs> just about Christianity, because I'm sure not that I've seen any, but I'm sure there are other films out there that propaganda films, perhaps to an extent. That kind of you've got the ISIS videos, they could be classed as uh, films, can't wouldn't they, to an extent that are are mm. forcing an ideology upon certain people. So, you know, it does happen. There may not be commercial in your local theatre anytime soon. But, oh, yeah. But but you know, they, they exist and they exist in different cultures, and it's just the fact that obviously the Christians have got it together and managed to get it into a, a viable outlet and commercialise it, whereas ISIS are still trying to trying to balance that one with uh, the films that they make at the moment. And uh, I don't think they'll pass any sense board uh, anytime soon. So, <laughs> um, so that was uh, faith based films as our second part of our news, and the third part. Now this is the part you're really looking forward to, Carolyn. Women and science <laughs> fiction. Now, right? We we've touched on this. Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time came out uh, a week ago. And the reason I wanted to bring this up today was the fact that it's not very often that you have a woman director involved in a science fiction story at that level. She is the, the first director uh, of colour, I believe, to have a right. film with a hundred million budget behind it. And I we sent a list between each other before we did the mm-hmm. podcast. It's absolutely astounding to see the lack of... Science fiction films out there, and certainly notable science fiction films out there uh, by women.
2: Yeah, it's true. This idea that women are inherently either less talented or less interested in science and maths, or um, uh, less capable, Mm -hmm. uh, and so that that somehow extends to science fiction. I thought we'd kind of gotten over that, but. But maybe maybe uh, maybe less than I realized because um, I I do a talk in local colleges once in a while about um, AI and robots in uh, fiction and real life and kind of we compare our assumptions and it's it's kind of a fun thing to do it's a bit of uh, unusual for for some of those college kids it's a, like a, a writing class so I've had fun asking them like do you think of science fiction as uh, a guy's thing? Would it surprise you to hear of a woman who's interested in science fiction? And it's just blank faces, like, what are you talking about? And that makes sense to me. I'm I'm quite a bit older than them. But even from my point of view, like, I, I didn't pick up that message. And yet, and yet it's a real thing. And it's not totally gone yet. In the articles that we we shared and we're reading, they, they were talking about this assumption that women can't be good at science fiction, or women don't want anything to do with science fiction and i yeah i just find that so 1950s sure, um, but isn't
1: that the, the isn't that emulated from the fact that there hasn't been anything brought to such a level from a woman writer or a woman director that that would reinforce the fact that women are interested in in science fiction to such an extent i know you know we talk about the the white man template as all things nice. you know <laughs> you know that's our starting point uh, which hopefully will change in in due course not that it's probably because no one's actually taken a punt on making some of this or or bringing it to such a level but this is your sort of speciality area what the what are the things that perhaps myself and our listeners have missed out on in terms of literary works in terms of filmic works that perhaps deserved more attention than they got at the time obviously Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time a wrinkle I hadn't even heard of the book oh you're uh, kidding no, Oh, those
2: were favorites of mine when I was young it's
1: not even a thing over in the UK never even heard of that it that might
2: be the difference yeah it's a cultural uh, thing
1: it's 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 really maybe. yeah it's really like never heard of it well, I, there's
2: also Anne McCaffrey dragon song dragon singer see these are things i haven't
1: heard of this is amazing Oh
2: man yeah she um i mean these are for young adult readers sure uh i I am one of those oh really okay well then definitely (laughs) if you're interested in that kind of stuff definitely read a wrinkle in time and the subsequent um sequels that she did were really really good as well my favorite was a wind in the door the one that comes next and um anyways i won't i won't go on listing them but Anne mccaffrey is like her own uh, institution practically in uh, fantasy for, uh, well, excuse me, that's fantasy actually, but they do kind kind of of cross over. I was naive to feminism big time when I was a little girl. I just kind of adopted the quote unquote male interests and just assumed that I was uh, an anomaly. And it it never made me question gender stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It never made me realize, oh, gender stereotypes are BS clearly because, you know, because of looking at me, I just considered, well, I must be different. And so that's unfortunate. That just goes to show you how much you internalize some of these things. Um, So, so, and like I say, I had these women writers, I read lots of books uh, uh, science fiction and fantasy by women writers when I was growing up. So maybe I was in this little pocket uh, of goodness there. But, um, did you, did I, when you
1: deliberately to- go out and seek these uh, no, books? No, uh-uh.
2: I just I picked up the ones that I thought had the most interesting stories. Um, it, clearly stories are still my big interest. So <laughs> my mom would take us to the library. I would camp myself in the science fiction and fantasy section mm-hmm. because I'm such a book nerd. I would literally pick up every single book off the shelf, uh, like just in order and read the inside leaflet or the back or whatever Mm -hmm. and evaluate whether or not I thought that story sounded interesting. And I would bring home the ones that I thought were cool. And I ended up, really love like finding loads of gold in there but a lot of it is unknown authors bec- because that was my method instead of just somebody being like you should read pierce anthony pierce anthony is really good and funny that eventually happened and i was like pierce anthony's kind of so <laughs> so i never really liked him or never read him even though like he's a huge name same with the um hitchhiker from the galaxy guy just like eh, i don't Adams. know yes yeah not doing it for me just okay. uh like some people find him really funny. I It doesn't work for me. But um, yeah, so a lot of my big names from growing up are are people you've never heard of. A lot of them were women. Like I say, I may just not be a great example. When it comes to Hollywood, though, Mm -hmm. there are so many people involved in the making of a movie. And it is such a system. Uh, We think of Hollywood as being leftist. And that's not entirely accurate. The actors themselves are leftist. And they like to talk about progressive ideas and very live kinds of motivations and all that but they're just the actors the actual um the uh, studios and the um the people that are actually making decisions, uh, calling the shots, funding movies, pulling backing from other movies, the the infrastructure there is very conservative. In fact, they're um, they're interested in making a lot of money. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's their number one goal. Um, so they're not really driven too much by ideology in terms of like morally where they where they come down. But um, I so I think that the lack of female directors and writers that we see in Hollywood is just indicative of the the culture and tradition of male chauvinism in that whole system. And I don't know why it necessarily comes out more with science fiction, but if you were to look at, say, war movies, m- movies that dealt with war themes and mm-hmm. battle stuff like, uh, you know, uh, Black Hawk Down and stuff like that, you're probably going to see even fewer women directors Is that be- and writers. Is that because... There's no women out there that are interested in that. I, I, who knows? I haven't done the sociological studies, but um, well, women... Well, I,
1: I think that's an unfair example because... Really? Okay. Because I think perhaps contemporary war stories are a thing, but a lot of war stories obviously span history, and yeah. traditionally women weren't at war. And so a lot of these stories are told from men and men's perspectives, I guess. So hence why you... So were- you
2: couldn't have a female writer and director?
1: You could have a female writer and director by all means, but I, I'm just thinking in terms of perhaps when we talk about films with uh, women characters and uh, and, a, and a woman's per- perception, perhaps driving a film, who wrote the film, who directed the film, adds a bit of air or authenticity to it. Would you not say? So, if it, you can absolutely have a woman directing uh, a, a war film about a load of men stuck in the trench in World War Two, right? That's not a problem.
2: Well, and I, because I would suggest that most of the actors, writers and directors have never actually been in a trench. So if you're talking about life experience, mm-hmm. I don't think those men are really bringing any more life experience than a woman who's very interested in um, military history.
1: Oh, no, no, absolutely not. But um, for the the male experience, I guess, is what I'm trying to trying to poorly okay. argue. Here. All right.
2: Sure. no no it's cool it's worth debating
1: that perhaps they would have not necessarily but perhaps they would have more of an understanding of being in a group of guys and the camaraderie and the sort of things that you may talk about as being a guy within a group whereas i'm not saying a woman necessarily wouldn't be able to do that or certainly emulate that but from a a man doing that would add a bit more authenticity to it, basically. I
2: don't know. I don't know. I guess we're just speculating. Well, I don't know. You might be right. I mean, we're just speculating at this point. Um, there's there's male authors who've managed to write women's experience very effectively, and they've gotten you know recognition for that, and the vice versa. There's mm-hmm. plenty of women that um, that write about men. So I think it's possible for the person with the right sensitivities and the right imagination to be able to cross into other modes. But when it comes to this problem of, of um, gender inequality in mm-hmm. Hollywood, I mean, it's such a tangled web. I, I just don't—I I think it needs to be fixed, We need to move forward. I think the Me Too movement has been really a positive thing. The Time's Up stuff. I'm really happy all that's happening. I really honestly, when it started, I didn't think it was going to have any effect. But it seems like it is. And so I think the culture is slowly changing. And I think the culture is slowly changing with um, science fiction as well. I'm not trying to make any excuses for anybody who is passing over uh, women directors or women writers because we'd prefer to have a man in science fiction. I'm not giving them a pass at all. None. I just, um, I do think we've got to recognize the progress that's that's moving in, in the right direction. Because you'd mentioned uh, the Blade Runner mm. movie. I know that there's, there's some women out there that have really reacted negatively to the portrayal of women in Blade Runner. Again, it comes down to to context. And I was really happy that one of the authors actually alluded to another uh, writer that made the argument that the world of Blade Runner is a feminist allegory for labor under capitalism, which is similar to the argument I've made in the past that cyberpunk is critiquing the negative aspects of capitalism. And so one of the negative aspects is the objectification and sexualization of women. Mm -hmm. And so it's not showing you, Joy, the um, AI girlfriend, to say, isn't that great? That's where we're all going to get in the future. That's, it, You know, if you're reading the movie that way, you're missing the point. Um, and there will be some people a,
1: reading the movie in that way. When it's not spelled out for them, they'll be thinking, great, virtual boyfriends, girlfriends for everyone in the future, for all. But obviously they, they but I, the point.
2: I, I think that some of these feminists are reading it that way and missing the point. And that's why I, I just like to push back on that a little bit because I think the movie is critiquing uh, that setting. And um, I think one of the authors we read in particular went a little bit overboard ar- arguing that say in Ex Machina for example Ava is monsterized because she refuses to be interested in Caleb and and I was just like really like wow I that I had a different experience in that movie right like her ability to free herself I thought was actually more feminist and the movie seemed to be celebrating her freedom at the end so
1: I took that away from Ex Machina so that's the Alex Garland film that came out a couple of years ago with Alicia Vikander and it's about uh, an AI constructed by a man who is almost like a uh, Mark Zuckerberg of sorts of the cybernetic world right. yeah. uh, played by Oscar Isaacs and uh, this intern wins a lottery to come and come to this magical island where Oscar Isaac's there with all of these seemingly beautiful women and living this playboy lifestyle and it's sort of played as aspirational at first and then things take a darker turn and um, spoiler alert if you don't want to find the end of this film I'm mean, about to tell you <laughs> (laughs) the primary ai which is alicia Vikander's character ava she is eventually liberated that doesn't give it away completely but um she is eventually liberated in the story and yeah um, i can't believe that people are reading that in a different manner that's what i i I found that to be essentially female empowerment you know taking back that power from the oscar isaacs character who had created her in his own vision Um, and
2: he is portrayed as being such a villain too mm. like there's no question that the way Way he uh constructs and uses these women well women robots or whatever you want to call them is atrocious we don't have any sympathy for this character we don't see this as a bright future that we all might hope for so in that way i think the the movie is is really good along those lines and the uh female ava or well female robot the the qualities that she ultimately is able to use is her intelligence so again ding 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 win for feminism right so <laughs> (laughs) I I don't know. It's
1: it's really interesting how you've stopped yourself a couple of times there by calling her female and then stepping back and clarifying that by saying female robot, which is essentially what she is. Do you not see her as slightly anthropomorphized? uh, Oh, of
2: course. Okay. of course I, I don't know I'm just trying to be specific for if, if anybody's listening and hasn't hasn't watched it I didn't want to be confusing if I was to suggest female oh, no, which no, the word yeah. would associate with like a, a biological woman okay when
1: I see a robot uh, on screen I, depending on their characteristics and, the, and perhaps their outward appearance then you would assign a, a gender to them right I think that in terms of Ava initially she starts off in that film as being quite asexual
2: yeah sure absolutely I have to tell you my master's thesis was actually on the topic of the cyborg and how throughout history, going back as far as the 1600s, women or machines have been imaginative machines that men are either drawing pictures of or writing stories about or whatever, or actually creating little models of, have been sexualized. When you start to uncover this history, it's amazing. Our personified machines have basically always been uh, women. And then you can even find this story uh, of Pygmalion. Mm -hmm. And the story there is not so much technology because it was pre-technological society, obviously. He constructs her out of clay. But again, he has the ability to create a person. So what does he create? A sex partner for himself. (laughs) And it's just kind of like throughout history. If a man can make a body, he's gonna make it a woman's body, right? Right. Uh, For his own pleasure and also for, you know, to sweep the house, do the laundry. Uh, It's just been around forever. It's funny to see how these ideas are maturing in a sense. And and by when I say that, I mean in the sense that we're able to take some perspective on them and critique those ideas. So the artificial women in Blade Runner 2049, mm-hmm. I think are interesting critiques of that really long tradition. And Ava as well is another critique of that tradition. Traditionally, these women are um, portrayed as going haywire, mm-hmm. becoming terribly dangerous. Think of Met- Metropolis, that old the old black and white yeah. movie the first uh, science fiction movie ever uh, and also i think one of the biggest budget movies ever at that time it was, yeah. and there that movie features a woman who is a, a robot and she um, tantalizes the men and mesmerizes them and she's both sexual and threatening and so this woman always has to be basically terminated that's that's the usual narrative for, for this woman. She'll be sexy and, and enticing at first, mm-hmm. then she'll go absolutely haywire. There was a movie in the 80s called Eve 8 uh, where there was a bomb in her womb and, uh, you know, ugh, they had to shut her down and destroy her and that's usually what happens. She's destroyed like the witch, cleanses the the community and they're able to go back to normal without without her. So we're getting away from those narratives now. We're able to kind of look back on them and critique them and present these these women in different ways. So, I don't know. I For me, i find that an interesting progress uh, i think there's more to it
1: and do you than, think do you think yeah. it'll be a woman that will push this on now because blade runner 2049 is probably the latest example of that in particular um and that was directed by denny villeneuve and, and written by mm-hmm. Denis villeneuve to an extent do you think it would be mm-hmm. nice to see a, a woman take up the mantle and push the narrative and certainly the thematics on uh, with <laughs> oh, regards of course. with regards to i guess is it cybernetic um representation of women is that what we're calling
2: cyborgian. it cyborgian cyborgian okay yeah cybernetics is more like the real science of okay. uh, of computers and whatnot but yeah usually you do get better perspectives on women's stories and situations through women that's certainly true but you can get really good stories out of men just like I would hope that I'd be able to be an advocate for non-white people or you, you know what I mean like I'd, I if I was writing creating I wouldn't want to be pigeonholed by by how I'm defined Either So um, I don't know. I guess I'm open-minded. This goes
1: back to the whole thing we were talking about Isle of Dogs, where should we just write about who we are and what we know rather than trying to explore other cultures and and step into someone else's shoes. Um, I
2: don't want to discourage men. You know what I mean? There's mm. been so much great uh, progress and there are so many great men out there that are just trying to do the right thing. And I think sometimes they get a little, rightly so sometimes, a little nervous and scared of the backlash that sometimes lacks nuance and they feel like oh i don't even want to go anywhere near touching anything to do with women because or cultural appropriation because people are going to come down heavy on me for whatever right i don't think we want to go there
1: absolutely not in terms of women in science fiction let's give a couple of uh, recommendations so from my perspective i'm not going to recommend something as as basin as probably the worst end of the scale is something like weird science <laughs> two okay horn- yeah two horny boys are create a woman in, in their laboratory uh, essentially a sex object uh which yeah as kelly lebrock uh I, I guess a classic for its time in some respects but in retrospect when you're you're an adult and looking back on that horrific
2: terrible. i watched that when i was young i haven't seen it in a long time i do remember the basics but the fact that it's a comedy does put a slightly different spin on i mean you can look back at that story as almost a teaching tool to be like it's really on the nose about creating the sex object it's all it can almost be instructional in that way yeah but we don't want any more of those i
1: agree no no, absolutely and i suppose uh, you know if you wanted to twist it a bit more you could see it as irony, couldn't you? Like saying, oh, they were being ironic back then and everyone lapped it up in in a different manner. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you wanted to go that far. But there, there are a couple of really interesting films coming up this year. One by Claire Denis, who is a fantastic French director she's uh, bringing a science fiction film out a bit later on this year with Robert Pattinson I believe and that's something I'm really really looking forward to we had as I said we had a list here of science fiction films by women or noted science fiction films by women and there are very it's very very slim pickings for your big names in yeah there. Catherine yeah. Bigelow's Strange Days from 1995 is one of them and then
2: which I loved by the way I've never I seen noticed... it oh man You've got to it t- tell us so about good. it give us give us, give us okay. a kind of a line why, so why is got... it
1: science fiction because I, I don't get that from the, the what I've read about it.
2: Right. Okay. It's uh, one of these near science fictions, which is a great uh subgenre these days. And it's Ray Fines and Juliet Lewis. And the the new drug on the beat is this thing where you put these electrodes on your head. It can record your experience. Everything from what you see, hear, smell, touch, feel, everything. It records your senses, like through your brain somehow. And you can record it on onto like a disc, like a floppy disc, then you can sell that. And so there's a black market where people sell these experiences. So you can imagine that you have actresses, actors that um, specialize in creating these uh, experiences. So maybe you're a, a porn star and you have those kinds of experiences and people can buy that and experience that, right? Or maybe you're one of these people that does extreme sports and you're into crazy wild adrenaline rushes. And so this guy records himself doing wild and crazy things. And then you can stick the thing on your head and have the experience from the Mm -hmm. comfort of your couch. Right. So but it's illegal. It's been made illegal, just like any other drug. It's a drug metaphor. So uh, you can OD if uh, you can have something go wrong and have it fry your brain. So the danger is tied up into it. And uh, so anyways, that's the background. And the Ray Fiennes main character is a drug dealer. He sells these things, and his ex-girlfriend is Juliette Lewis, who's a pop star, singer in kind of the seedy underground uh, bar scene in the cyberpunk world. And um, not not
1: not unlike Juliette Lewis in uh, real life at the time, I, I would imagine
2: oh really see I loved her too so that's part of the reason why I love this movie is I just love her right, but yeah. um and she does a fantastic job and she can actually sing so she's, oh, yeah, no, she's I, like
1: I, I think they're brilliant uh, Juliette Lewis and the Licks brilliant band I, I've, I've got their last couple I didn't
2: know oh my god they're okay also... I'll have to check that out so yeah she's singing on stage and stuff so the idea is that they broke up and he is just super torn up about it and he has all these secret tapes that he took from their relationship so the the way they do the um, flashbacks to his love with her is through these things that he's recorded and then there's some gang that's involved that's ended coming after him so it's kind of your seedy underbelly Crime story in that sense as well, okay. but it's in this near future. But the drug is so, uh, or or this this virtual reality experience is just so compelling and interesting. Like oh, there's snuff films, people that actually die while they're recording this experience, and right. that's like the super heavy stuff. Careful, don't do that, right? And then they, anyway, oh, I shouldn't give the spoiler. No, okay, no, no, no don't give any more. That, yeah, that, I think that's a good taste. It's really worth watching, though. Okay. It's so much fun.
1: It's going onto my watch list right now. So that's Strange cool. Days from 1995 by by Catherine Bigelow does Catherine Bigelow bring anything to that narrative as as a woman or do you just that's think a good
2: question Or does she
1: is, is she just directing another story
2: I, it's been a long time but I don't see when I'm thinking back on it I don't see any woman's touch there it okay. pretty much plays like your standard Hollywood sci-fi okay
1: well that that's the least one and what do you think about because also in this list Lana and Lily Wachowskis who have transitioned and are now credited as having made some of these great science fiction films of at the time they were men when they made The Matrix right? Yeah. I know we're on dicey um, ground here I'm being very careful but Yeah
2: no no um, that's cool um, I uh, I don't I think the trans experience is its own experience Right. I, do you, do you, I
1: don't know. Do you get annoyed when uh, say for example that trans women are included in this list would you prefer if it was is, is the right term cis women?
2: Cis means that you, your biology and how you identify lineup right i believe because there's those that prefer to be asexual or or non-binary as well so they are also like different
1: okay so biological women would you is it fair for them to be coupled in this list of notable women directors I I,
2: I think maybe not, actually, because the whole idea is that if you've had a lifetime of experience in the world being received, responded to as a woman, that's how you would bring the experience that we're talking about to to telling a story. And so if you even if if in your if you're thinking to yourself I identify as a woman I feel that I'm a woman the the whole world is responding to you as a man so you're getting all the privilege of being male in a man's world so I'm not really sure it's fair I am totally pro trans rights so I you know I would I'll call people by any uh, pronoun they prefer. Mm-hmm. And I am fully uh, in agreement that people who have transitioned or are trans people are the gender that they desire to be. So I have no issue with that. But I think when it comes to the questions we're talking about in terms of telling stories, it's the experience that counts. Okay. I hope that doesn't offend
1: anybody. I will call off the horde with pitchforks that are coming down the road.
2: Okay. Right now. All okay.
1: right. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll have that entire list of sci fi features directed by women, including uh, the Wachowskis, on our notes which are just below the podcast so if you touch our picture there and flick up on iTunes you will have extensive notes of when and where things are happening within the podcast and if you're sensible you would have done that at the start and flicked the part that you wanted to hear about. Uh, We'll also put in links to everything that Carrie Lynn does, everything that I do and if you want to talk about anything that we've discussed in the news today including Wes Anderson's Cultural Appropriation in the Isle of Dogs faith-based films or women in science fiction film why not drop us a line? Facebook.com forward slash FilmSeekers is one way to contact us. You can tweet us at FilmSeekers on Twitter And if you want to send us a photo or a comment under our photo, we're also on Instagram, Filmseekers, all one word. Uh, And if you want to send us an email, traditional email, hello at Filmseekers.com is where you can find us as well. Why don't you drop us a line? Tell us what you think of any of those subjects in the news today. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa.
2: I'm Hermano da Silva. And this is Walter Vinci.
1: And together, we are the First Time
2: Watchers Podcast. Each week, we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame.
1: You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers podcast. As well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners. So if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet, an email, or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all
2: about interaction
1: talking about what we love movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And oh, let's talk about this. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. God watch. damn it, shut, I shut up. up. I think that's oh, enough. Go that is the holy trinity there of Hamano, Tim, and Wally as part of the first time watchers they watch films for the very first time and discuss them sometimes on the second time as well lovely guys well worth a listen to their podcast if you want to find out a bit more about some of the films that you watch for the very first time and uh, we absolutely love them here good friends of the podcast and on to our festival and awards section now as it's the beginning of the year not a lot of stuff's going on we've had glasgow film festival we've had berlin film festival with a couple of winners and if you want to find out about those they were mentioned on last week's podcast we want to talk about Cannes, and that's what everyone else is really looking forward to. It is where all your movers and shakers happen, and it's only down the road in May, between the 8th and the 19th. And this year, there have been some changes to the Cannes Film Festival award rule lineup. So last year, they included two films in competition that were made by Netflix. One of them was Oxya uh, by Boon Jong Ho. And the other film was The Mailrit Stories by Non Bonbach, uh, who is a famous indie uh, filmmaker from the States. Uh, these were very controversial at the time because it's Netflix is seen as a threat to traditional cinema. And this year, the head of Cannes turned around this year and said that he was only allowing those films into competition last year because he was convinced that it, they might actually... Send them out as cinematic releases, which they did in very, very small amounts. And he was hoping for much more of that because the French are all about protecting their culture. And I guess, Caroline, you know about this being over Quebec. (laughs) So uh, I know that in France, on the radio, for example, they have to, they have a quota, right? Uh, They have to play a French song in French every five songs or something i think that may have changed but when i was at school that was one of the things that there that was taught to me was that on television there had to be a certain percentage of programming that was in french and original programming that was made in france as well and so it's all about that protection of culture and i guess the homogenization from anglo-speaking countries um and what happens over in quebec is there is there such quotas that they that, that oh medium? goodness
2: yes yeah There, um I, I didn't realize it also happened in France, to be honest, I guess they really feel like they're under threat. Um, Quebec, especially because uh, it's completely surrounded by um, Anglo culture. Uh, So I have to admit, I'm sympathetic. I see, well, for one thing, um, the steps that they've taken legally to protect the language here have really helped. Uh, It's bolstered the uh, rate of French speakers in Quebec quite a bit. It's been very successful. I think there's almost the lowest percentages of, of English speakers in Quebec's history, sometimes, uh, sometimes Quebecers today forget how much English was always in the province these measures do work and they have laws for signs everything has to be in French first definitely for content on TV and the radio so okay so you're you're a a dual language speaker I
1: take it because that's you know trying trying coming along
2: slowly (laughs) yeah I've only been here for um, almost six years it came with very little French so it's tough it's a tough slot I
1: I suppose when you're immersed in a culture like that it sort of permeates in into your, into your yep. vocabulary and stuff eventually, doesn't it? Um, it does. In terms of Can, I can sympathize with them. They're trying to protect uh, uh, almost a dying, uh, people see cinema as a sort of dying art. I mean,. <laughs> What do you feel about this? I mean, I I see people going less and less to the cinema and and quite happily staying at home and having similar experiences. And this, uh, we live in such a situation now when you can turn on the television, you've got Netflix there and, you know, a thousand titles at your disposal that you can watch whatever and something that only came out in the cinemas last year or last week or even the same day you can watch at home uh, for for no price apart from your subscription. And this, this kind of closeness about it, closed gate that can are doing to try and stop the the horse from bolting in my opinion the horse has already bolted you know right yeah and you can't you can't close that gate and expect the horse to to run back in um you know it's almost like pandora's box which interestingly enough we'll talk about we'll a, bit get later, to. a little yeah. later on <laughs> i think it's admirable and i think that, that there's certainly a nostalgia around it certainly uh, can is, seems to be ruled by a, a, an older audience uh, perhaps a less in touch uh, team of people that <laughs> whilst they have made concessions to letting people like netflix show their films there they're also trying to go oh we need to protect our little bubble and you know it's not like the good old days where films were shown at the cinema for x amount they i think france have you have to show your film there in the cinema for like something like six to eight months i think it is um before it's oh then my. released on dvd or blu-ray so you can't have a film that comes out on netflix the same day in france as it is in the cinema so you can't have day and day release releases like some some places do i think that in terms of their their rule changes it's it's cute but it's not going to make it the world's going to go on and i think the more that can push away uh, netflix that uh, netflix is just going to turn around and go you know what we'll set up our own festival and we're going to have x amount of people here and we're going to do it bigger and better we're going to track all the big names because we are the the new kid on the block and everyone wants to hang with us because we're so cool i, I think it's really sad and there's some other changes that can have made to their festival lineup as well so this is a very interesting one critic screenings will now be at the same time as the public so if you want to go and see a, a film and have an opinion on it you have to Mucking with the public now, last year, I was lucky enough to be as part of the press for London Film Festival. We got to see the film usually a day before, quite early in the morning, gives you time to go away, write the review, get it up on on your website or whatever it is. get it out on the blog, get a bit of buzz going, and that will inform people that are going to the film or or are unable to go to the film, and it will be a great way of driving audiences and traffic towards your site and and the stuff that you write. However, um, there's a bit of a sort of kickback on that because people have been writing negative reviews at Cannes last year, hmm. and that's been having a negative effect. Oh Cannes dear, yeah, because they're very vocal in Cannes. I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Carolyn. If your film is rubbish at Cannes, they don't stay quiet in the audience. Crowds move.
2: Oh, it's, yeah, moo. it's one of these interactive audience
1: c- cultures. Very much so. It's, oh, it's that's bizarre. Great. absolutely bizarre. Absolutely <laughs> bizarre. They will get up, they will leave their seats in droves, and they will moo at the back of the screen uh, oh and make this horrendous noise if they think your film is awful. And it can be in particularly be
2: intimidating. Em-
1: is can be very, very embarrassing for filmmakers who are showing their film for the first time to a public audience who has had negative press and then that snowballs, and then the public go right. Well, it's got all these bad reviews, so we're going to go to the screening with the filmmaker oh at the goodness. premiere, and we're going to boo them. And it can be some of the most embarrassing moments in their lives. And I, I can understand that. You know, if you're a director, or if you're even if you're an actor, having your film at its world premiere taken down quite publicly can be absolutely a thing that can make you distraught because you've put so much effort into making this and whether it's good or not you know whatever you've put an effort in surely to get on this world stage that everyone's looking at and it's just it's just awful which is so this will make the press have to attend at the same time and won't be able to formulate an opinion until the end of the film and that will save some faces at least I don't know why they didn't put an embargo in place because often if you see a film you'll have to sign something at the end saying right I won't put write anything about this or say anything online until such and such a time usually the beginning of the public gala screening at which time people wouldn't be able to read it so yeah really interesting and, and can's doing some other silly things no more selfies on the uh, red carpet I'm, I'm not sure why is mm. this and no high heels or, or, or high heels only i think it is um no flats oh that's I mean, strange that's <laughs> some people have foot issues right i don't know is, is this a, a a old value that men want wish to see women in high heels only to You know, emulate this glamorous sort of well, so-called glamorous look. It's um, something bizarre, and uh, I I don't know. I think they're shooting themselves in the foot in many ways. None of these seem like good, good moves. No, I have to agree. No, Um, it's just a real step back, and I think it's a little bit embarrassing. So there goes my Mm -hmm. invite to Cannes this year. (laughs) We'll be talking about the films coming down the line. Two can in the coming weeks, and just want to touch on a couple of them that have caught my eye. There's lots from different different countries going up. One that's particularly interesting is a horror film from australia now did you see the babadook Carolyn?
2: um no i gave that one a pass i don't see all the horror ones oh you're not a fan uh, it if strangely if it's sci-fi horror i really okay. like it if if it's anything else i tend not to yeah
1: okay so something like under the skin would would you class that as sci-fi horror?
2: oh one of
1: my favorites okay. yeah okay Jennifer Kent is a, a great Australian director uh, she made The Babadook which was everyone knows about by now it's a you know, mm-hmm. particularly scary uh, film about a, a, a man who lives in a basement based on a, a scary book with some scary drawings her follow up to that film The Nightingale, uh, which is an 1825 uh, set period thriller about a woman who takes revenge on a man who murdered her family possibly will be showing at Cannes now Cannes hasn't announced anything yet so we're just waiting with bated breath to, to see what that, that will be um, obviously Netflix are out of the question at the moment, but there are quite a few titles on there. So, for example, Asghar Farahadi's films, who I really love, he is an Iranian filmmaker and he made a film called A Separation, which is a very, very simple story about a Muslim couple in Iran who separate it feels very different to watching a separation from uh, an anglophone or a, a, you know a western audience where there, there, there can be often high emotions and screaming and, and shouting and this is all very actually very muted and there's there's uh, within islam there is actually uh, an imam of sorts a, a guy who will sit there quietly do some mediation between the two couples and then agree that they should part ultimately this is the woman who's driving the story in in the separation and asghar farhadi i think this makes some very progressive stories about iran and the iran that you perhaps think of a a war torn country and dictatorship and and everything else that perhaps goes with the stereotypes that a lot of people have of the middle east i think he blows them out the water and he's made some very very accomplished films if you get a chance to see any of asghar farhadi films definitely watch them this this year it can it is touted that he will have his english language i think it's no second english language film uh, this is set in spain it's called everybody knows and it stars penelope cruz javier bardem and ricardo darren and i'm really really looking forward to seeing that because he is on 100 uh, percent for me in every single film that he's made i have seen and they're just wonderful wonderful pieces of work we will be revisiting some of these films going into can week in the coming two weeks, and then nearer the time we'll have a full lineup. And uh, obviously, then we'll be in, into the whole festival season, and we'll have much, much more to talk about. So, obviously, we're quite speculating at the moment. Now, Caroline, does does any of this interest you? I mean, what do you feel about festivals, and what do you feel about awards as well? I mean, did, does it inform you on what you go and see, and um, do, you, do you get do you get any sort of messages from film festivals? In, in I know it's not something you perhaps concentrate on, but in the periphery is there anything? You go, oh, that one, that's that award. This year and I'll make a beeline to go and see that at some point. Uh
2: to be honest, the um the international awards interest me more than the Oscars say. Um I find my taste doesn't usually line up with the Oscars, the things that get nominated, and um I mean there's there's a handful there that I do enjoy, but I uh just because something wins an Oscar doesn't mean I'm going to be interested to go see it. I have particular tastes. Uh however, if I'm rooting through titles that look interesting to me and um it's one, you know, they all always put them on the cover the the awards that they've won at various festivals uh or international awards those do sway me actually because i find international taste in movies is sometimes better (laughs) than american taste in movies um so that can sway me towards a particular one however i don't follow it it's not a news item that i that i follow so much
1: okay see i i am very much of that persuasion to some extent i i love my international films i love my uh subtitled films yes last year at the Cannes Film Festival the Palme d'Or was taken away by Uh, Ruben Ostland's film The Square and I finally got around to watching that for the third time uh, this year finally on the big screen um, because all the previous times I'd seen them on a small screen that I was given screeners by the film production crew for awards and it was a wonderful experience to see it on the screen for a third time it's a a great story about the lampooning of the absurdist world of art and what is art and uh, it's a one man's downfall story really really good if you get around to seeing that and I loved his previous work Force Majeure as well both both excellent films uh ruben ostland's a a brilliant director and i I look forward to seeing more films from him and it'll be interesting to see this year can will also get the creme de la creme from the international world of uh, film and evidently something will come out of that down the line at at some of the other festivals and also i I hope to see perhaps some of it at the oscars next year as well we're done with festivals and uh, we're on to our usual section which is this
0: The UK Box Office Top Ten Countdown.
1: This is the part of the podcast where we will look at the UK box office top 10 bit of a weird one for you Carrie Lynn seeing as some of this (laughs) is highly irrelevant being over in Quebec but we're going to go for it nonetheless you may have seen some of the films that we have seen as well Uh, this is dated the 29th of March some of these will have changed in the interim period that you may have listened to this but uh, this just gives you a bit of a taste of what we've seen and what we think of it so from the top number 10 It is Finding Your Feet. It is uh, a film designed for the silver or grey pound. A slightly older audience. uh, Your older (laughs) audience who goes to the cinema more than younger people do and and have a more traditional view of going to the cinema and i spoke about this in the last podcast they will be your best customers at the cinema they are very loyal they still have the nostalgia for having an evening and and having a special occasion of going to the cinema on a friday saturday sunday night and seeing these more gentler films finding your feet is about a relationship that goes to pot in its autumn years and it is about re-establishing yourself and as the title suggests finding your feet and re- reappropriating yourself in the world it has a great cast including imelda staunton joanna lumley uh timothy spall uh, and it's made some decent money it's up to five million in the uk which is uh, no mean feat in itself and it's in its fifth week at number 10 there number nine the red sparrow starring jennifer lawrence as a undercover spy slash ballerina Carolyn, have you seen this one yes i have actually bit of a controversial one to some extent quite a violent film as well i was quite taken aback mm. by it um yeah. based, based on a, a, a novel from the not dis- too distant past yeah and, you
2: can and- see that it's coming from a novel because there's some real depth of uh, storytelling there and you enjoyed it i take it um it's okay i have to admit i can't help but put it in contrast with the tv show the americans have you watched that no please explain all right. So the Americans, uh it's going into its sixth or seventh seventh and final season now, I think maybe. And um it has been about uh um Russian spies okay. it's set in the Cold War, Russian spies that are so deep in the uh United States, nobody knows they're Russians, they act as a married couple, they have children that they actually had. Um in the united states but they're undercover russian agents and so it's similar in the sense that uh you see jennifer lawrence's character go through the training and through flashbacks you see similar scenes of um the russian secret service spy training essentially mm-hmm. and then you see how they they act in these scenarios where they have to get information or whatever um the asset is or whatever uh so i couldn't help but put it in contrast with that because i'm a big fan of the americans i Really recommend you find a way to watch it actually. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just doesn't quite hold up. Um, The Americans does it a lot better. I take it too that the the book is better than the movie. The movie focused a lot on the sex aspects, which is a big part, I think, but it's not all of it. Whereas the movie made it feel like it was just kind of all of it. And it was very violent. I don't know, it was okay.
1: It was okay. I came away with it in, in kind of a contrast to yourself. I, I found the sex was certainly pointed when it needed to be so there's parts in the Sparrow Academy which kind of took me aback and I I didn't expect that and then in some of the latter parts as well but I didn't think that was the overriding theme of it I I found that it was kind of bogged down quite a lot in some of the the back end of the mechanics so where her her, the character's uncle is having these clandestine meetings and then certainly Joel Edgerton's character there meeting up with uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character I, I, I guess it took away some of the drive that Jennifer Lawrence's character had. It just felt like it wasn't her film at times. In in that respect, it didn't work for me. I kind of got bored uh, somewhere in the middle mm, as well. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it is a little bit overlong for me, but it's doing good numbers. It's taken six million at the box office in the UK and it's into its fourth week. Number eight. Game night. The stars. Oscar nominated Rachel McAdams alongside Jason Bateman. I'm not the biggest fan of Jason Bateman. I can find him quite irritating at times, but uh, let's let's find out how irritating jason can be
0: hands in the air heads on the ground
2: good that's it get them up reach for it that's right there we go all
1: right hands in the
2: air get them up yep where's my head go down on the
1: floor
2: just rest it
1: how am i supposed to put my hands in the air with my head on the floor
0: exactly i did have the same question
2: (sighs) child's pose do you guys know child's pose you've never done yoga okay wow (laughs) Cover me. Show him, baby. All right. Here she comes. Arms out. Knees apart if you have back problems. <sighs> and if you're doing it right, you're really going to feel that lumbar opening up back there. Let's
1: put your head down. Come on. I don't have to use this, Okay. <laughs> Uh, quite a comedic clip there of Rachel McAdams teaching yoga to some people who are trying to kill her apparently so this film follows uh, a couple who invite other couples over to have a board game night, they love things like Trivial Pursuit and uh, Mastermind and things like that, Cluedo and one night it turns a bit too real and people start getting off left, right and centre. Apparently it's a, it's quite a good comedy, it's not as broad as the, the uh, synopsis I've given there suggests that clip sounded kind of funny, I don't don't really have any drive to go and see it would would that entice you to go and see it as some turn your head off entertainment
2: well i watched the trailer and um i know what you mean about jason bateman it feels like like i loved him in arrested development and then he does other things and you realize oh it's just the same guy over and over <laughs> but um <laughs> i'm gonna go see it i think it'll probably be a good laugh i will admit i'm not gonna go to the theater for it i'm okay. gonna get it at home later okay. but I, I think it'll be funny
1: okay uh, yeah and I, i'm i'm willing to to give it a a bash at some point i think comedy and certainly american comedy is probably at the bottom of my list even below some Uh, children's animation at some point okay so so in terms of my priority that that is quite is quite low down i um that along with the uh leslie mann and john cena film that's come out this week called blockers uh which follows uh parents trying to stop their kids having sex on prom night uh an interesting premise Uh, apparently not too bad Uh, initial critical reviews said it's not too bad and i don't mind that sort of thing now and again you know okay you know, variety is a spice of life, and so you know, I, I feel it's important to amalgamate these things into my my filmic diet at some point. Uh, Game night doing very well for itself. Fourth week, normally these films pop in and pop out very quickly. It's taken four and a half thousand pounds there at number eight. Number seven, it is. Unsane. Now, this is the latest film from. Steven Soderbergh who is famous for doing the Oceans films uh, he also did a similar film to this called Side Effects a couple of years ago with uh, Rooney Mara and Catherine Zeta-Jones about a woman in an insane asylum this is Exactly the same film, uh, but a bit different because it was all filmed on an iPhone, which is its unique selling point. Not your iPhone Hmm. that you get off the shelf. Obviously, there are some different things that go into it, including some funny lenses and all the rest of it. But primarily filmed on an iPhone starring Claire Foy, who played the queen in the Netflix series The Crown, uh, taking on a very different role here where she is committed to an asylum of sorts. And doesn't believe that she should be there, and if she's having delusions that perhaps she's being locked up against her will, and it's not just her imagination. And it plays on that sort of undefined sort of characteristic there of like, oh, is she going crazy, or is she actually sane, as the title suggests, insane? I'm not really that bothered about it. Once again, it's something that I will. Probably watch at home i don 't particularly go to the cinema to watch those sort of things, but mainly because i don 't like audiences who go and watch horror films. They are some of the worst vocal audiences possible, and some you know they, they 're there just to get the the jump scares so the quiet quiet bang moments and I'm not into that. If I want that, I'll watch it on my own. I don't need someone's phone in my face. They tend to be quite younger audiences as well. That really badly behaved. Do you not, do you find that at all, Carolyn, with these sort of things?
2: Um, I think our audiences are, um, fall into the kind of Canadian cliche of being polite. I have to admit, um, yeah, they really sit and shut up and turn their phones off and they don't even walk out when it's bad. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I'm with you. I'm not super bothered about unsane. Um, I do love an unreliable narrator. That's the Mm -hmm. literary term for for that. When you're in that position of going, can I trust what this person is telling me or experiencing or is it all wonky? So that's fun. It, when it's done well, and but I don't know, there's something formulaic and kind of humdrum seeming about this one.
1: It's doing okay. It's taken about seven uh, £750,000 in its first week. At number seven, though, quite low charting, so we expect it to drop out fairly soon. Number six a wrinkle in time ava duvernay's debut into the science fiction field i guess she'll become another person on that uh list of women who have directed uh films in the science science fiction genre uh based on a beloved book a wrinkle in time not really known over in the uk but apparently well known over in the states and canada
2: yeah that's right
1: okay and, and something you would have re- read at what age
2: oh gosh i think i read that around nine or ten okay
1: and, and yeah. did, did it have a profound effect? Is it, is it something you? It love? did
2: actually, you know, because it's it's got a lot of touchy feely kind of positive messages for young people, and um, so I think that really resonated a lot with me at the time. It just like the believe in yourself uh, types of messages, although it's smartly written as well, um, and you learn science as you go along with it too. Uh, they've got this little brother who's this little genius, and um, that's the focus in the second one. To to be honest, I don't really remember what happens in a Wrinkle okay. in Time too much, and that's part of the reason why I don't want to go see the movie. I feel really embarrassed now because here it's this this wonderful female science fiction director, and I'm I just I don't want I have positive memories of the vaguely of the book, um, and I don't want to disrupt those, you know. And mm-hmm. it's got Oprah in it, and I'm not a huge Oprah fan, and well, I
1: don't she, know she is she is the giant mystical. Black woman, isn't she not that we
2: were talking about yeah, earlier? She, she's a fantastical black woman. <laughs> yeah, she does turn up. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. This, this is a, um you know, a fantastic, uh, fantastical setting. So it's, it's not necessarily that that old stereotype. Do you think it appeals to a certain gender
1: as well? Because there's a suggestion that it, 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 it's a, it's a girl story.
2: You know, yeah, maybe it'll turn some girls on because they think this is, this is packaged for me. I have to say the, the all the. The flip side, which is disappointing, is that boys, when they hear a story is about a girl, have no interest. It doesn't matter what the story is about. um, Young boys somehow pick up this idea from a very early age that you don't want anything to do with girls or girl stuff. I have a boy who's uh, just turned 14 Hmm. and, you know, he would have gotten pretty decent messages, intentionally sent messages about gender uh, growing up, I would hope so but somehow if a story is exciting he loves science fiction like me so i've been able to turn him on to some great stuff but if it if it's featuring a girl he won't go near it and I just I don't know how you change that culture It's
1: smash the patriarchy that's what we need to do Um, (laughs) that's that's the great hope Uh, wrinkle in time there number 6 taking shy of uh, a million pounds and pretty disappointing to have only charted at number 6 in its first week number 5 the greatest showman the story continues 13 insane weeks to think this film came out on boxing day and had been in the can and push back and push back and push back and everyone one thought it would be an awful film the critics have been very divided very middling on it it tells the story of pt barnum who is this great showman from the early 1900s who essentially collected people who were a bit different uh, some may call them a freak show and put them on display and, and let them be empowered by being part of the show of course it plays down all the stuff around him exploiting them for money and uh, him being a white man with no disabilities or no, no other traits Ultimately, uh, really comes out of it on top but there's some great rousing songs in there you may have heard them on the radio they're pretty much inescapable let's be honest uh, This Is Me is probably the big song there's some, uh, Hugh Jackman does some really good work he's a really good song and dance man he pulls the film through and morally wh- whether that's right or wrong there are people that absolutely love this and they're continually going back to the cinema to re-watch this there's been a sing-along version as well that's been sold out <laughs> and all the rest it. it's become a phenomenon in the 13 weeks that it's you know been out in cinemas they've already pushed out out different versions of this film it's already out on dvd this week but it's still in the cinemas and people are still going to see it on wow. a huge screen it's insane well what, what have you got round to seeing this Carolyn? i'm gonna skip that one <laughs> okay so it's not it's not up your alley at all
2: mm, yeah i don't okay. need
1: it no and, and i'm the same i'm i'm not interested in a, a big musical i did see it as part of you know my wider variety of films that i i have to watch and i kind of enjoyed it and kind of got taken away by the saccharine story but when you step back and look at it yes it is it is very manipulative and uh it's doing good business number five 13 weeks in insane for the greatest showman number four tomb raider we talk about uh the cliche of strong female characters here's one mm-hmm. lara croft crossing over once again into the film world originally played by angelina jolie in the two uh films at the turn of the century there Playing a very different version of Lara Croft. This time it is Alicia Vikander, who we spoke about, uh, who was an ex machina there as the uh, um, mm-hmm. cyborg Ava. This time playing Lara Croft, and um, she is a much younger Lara Croft, uh, a much more assured Lara Croft, a much less male fantasy Lara Croft. I think that's right. That's kind yeah, of I've heard that. Good to say. Based on the rebooted games, so these rebooted games uh, of Tomb Raider feature Lara, a much more vulnerable and unsure part of her life. She is not there guns blazing. She kind of takes time to think about what she's doing. And when she makes her first kill in the game, it is a big moment. She she uh, fires an arrow into a deer's head for some crafting abilities. and. It is not just seen as another disposable animal. She goes over and and apologizes for what she's done. Uh, she needs sustenance. She needs meat. Um, she's not getting that from anywhere else. She also needs the the, the warmth of the um, the deer as well. I believe, from my recollection of it, written by Rihanna Pratchett for the game, who is the daughter of Terry Pratchett, the great fantasy. Author uh, are you aware of Terry Pratchett's work?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I'm familiar with him. He was another one of these uh, kind of comedy writers that uh, that just didn't didn't do it for me, but oh, okay. I'm familiar with him, yeah.
1: Obviously, the Discworld novels are very popular all over the world with fantasy readers. And I think Rihanna Pratchett's probably learned quite a few things from her father and taking it to the next generation and the next level and from a woman's perspective as well. Tomb Raider was an awful film for me, however. It really was the most base white tourist, I kind of think, a uh, view of the world where Lara, a very entitled character, has a lot of money behind her, uh, goes and uh, searches for her dead father because she doesn't think he's actually dead. Spoiler, he's not dead. And uh, <laughs> uh, and goes and searches of some treasures and there's some stuff that emulates the games like solving uh, puzzles and there's rubies and stones. There's also a lot of foreign characters, so uh, people of Southeast Asian and um, Asian descent who are not fleshed out of t- at all of course they're not because they're not important to the story it's all about Lara and her yeah. dad and all the white people in the film oh uh, dear it's uh, the second week uh, number four taking shy of six million pounds number three The Black Panther now Carolyn you have said to me off air that you have seen this one a phenomenal yeah. story taking 45 million uh, one of the most highest grossing comic book stories out there obviously it's USP is the fact that it features a large black cast and has black characters in there that have their own sort of impetus in the world and and meaning to that they're not just typecasts and stereotypes what were your feelings on it
2: i was so happy with this movie i mean i'd heard a lot of super positive press twitter was a buzz with praise and sometimes that can push me in the negative direction honestly um but i went in with an open mind because i'm not a big comic book fan i'm not a big fan of the uh, superhero movies at all just it's just not my genre for the most part but I loved this movie. I just found it so uplifting and it was so wonderful to see such a wide variety of African characters with real depth to their character, plenty of women with real depth to their character and a good message about just a more positive vision for African-Americans in the United States. So I'll admit that the feel goodness of that uh, got to me. I really got behind this movie and super fun, great ideas. The pacing was really good. So I can't say enough good about this movie. I really liked it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm of a similar
1: sort of direction of that. I, I, don't see many people of um of color on screen in these roles you know we have people like captain america who's the 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 great white hope i guess um (laughs) iron man as well there Uh, to see someone like black panther someone who has not exactly same skin tone as myself but similar skin tone to me meant an awful lot to see that being emulated on screen and i've spoken about this not being the first superhero that is of color we had uh Blade to an extent who came from a comic book mm. source with Wesley Snipes there and there's Spawn a good point. as well and Spawn wasn't really a, a big sort of they didn't play on his race at all really it was more about the fact that he came from hell Black Panther was hugely entertaining I, I loved every single minute of it and yeah how did you feel that not being a comic book fan unfortunately I'm not a comic book fan but I watch all these films anyway I do enjoy yeah, them I do
2: too yeah <laughs>
1: um, but uh, did did you feel like say for example you hadn't seen any of the comic book films? Do you think you could have gone into that sort of vanilla without knowing the background and stuff and seen it in a, in a story in its own right? Did it feel like a story in its own right to you?
2: Oh, certainly. I'm really not. Um, I didn't know anything about the backstory or the comic book stories of Black Panther before I went into it, so I went in pretty fresh, and um, it totally stood up for me in that sense. You got the you got a wider sense of
1: the whole thing. Also, there's some very challenging things that we haven't seen in comic book movies. So the idea of cultural appropriation, which we spoke about earlier. Uh, the character of claw and apartheid and how that's affected black culture and and black artifacts because there is a scene at at the beginning of the film where quote unquote baddie um, is looking at an artifact in a a british museum and uh, he asks how much it is and the the very snooty lady says it's not for sale well and then he turns around and goes, Well, how did you get it then? You know, how did you purchase yeah. this? And it, oh, yeah. you know, it goes there, doesn't it? And I, I think that the fact that it's 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 not strong, but it's certainly nudging the, the envelope of asking these very difficult questions of people's heritage is a good direction to go in. And it certainly generates that conversation with people like, Is this
2: right? Is this not right? And it uh, does You it- know, even the bad guy's name is Ulysses, and that's not an accident either. Um, I am interested in reading the comic books now to find out more more about that choice because ulysses is of course um odysseus from the greek tale of almost like the original colonial tale basically uh so you've got the western tradition and this nod to colonialism just in the name of the bad guy character there so
1: okay um once again coming from a literary source and a and a, and a very um, prominent literary source greek isn't it <laughs> ulysses um
2: Um, i think ulysses is the roman version with the the greek uh is odysseus but yeah same character yeah no no same
1: character this is why i should read more books black (laughs) panther doing exceptionally well the the most money on our on our list today 45 million in the space of six weeks and still they're at number three number two Pacific Rim Uprising, starring John Boyega of uh, Star Wars fame, I guess. And uh, if the, those of us in the UK will know him also from uh, a film called Attack the Block, a science fiction film uh, about a bunch was of. Was he
2: kids. in that? He I'd was. forgotten. I liked that movie. Okay. okay go it on. made its
1: way over there, did it? <laughs> um, I'm surprised. Um, I think I found
2: it through Netflix because okay. um, it's just, it's my genre. Sure.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's about aliens that crash land on Earth and it's about slightly impoverished, working class kids yeah trying to deal with this impending alien invasion and it's it's done in quite a smart way as well you don't yeah. really yeah. see some of these aliens coming through john Boyega's obviously built up his profile from being uh, one of the main protagonists in the star wars films as well which has sent him into the stratosphere quite literally in terms of his super superstardom pacific room uprising the, f- the sequel to a film by academy award-winning director guillermo del toro and this time guillermo does not take up the mantle it is a story about these things called uh jaegers and uh jaeger pilots so the jaegers are giant robots in which people go into them almost a bit like you remember power rangers where (laughs) the power rangers (laughs) were inside the giant robots and bashing things it's the same and it's
2: just as cheesy in my opinion it is
1: it is um in Mm. the first film john boyega's character was played by idris elba and he comes to the fold as sort of a superstar in this film on the back of his father's legacy and this is a moment when he appears on base and things aren't quite what they seem how you doing nate it's ranger lambert you having a laugh well this is a military base you remember how that works ranger pentecost you must be Amara Namani
0: Yes, sir Ranger, sir
1: Well, let's get you squared away Oh, and uh, try not to steal anything
2: while you're here
0: Did that haircut just call you Pentecost? As in badass stacker Pentecost? Pilot of coyote tango hero of basically the whole world? It's just a name Yeah, really cool name
1: There we are. A character that's clearly obsessed with the fame of John Boyega's dad, Idris Elba, in the first film. And this time he is carrying that weight with him uh, as more robots hit each other for the entirety of two hours. Uh, Not something that i'm particularly <laughs> interested in uh, i checked out of the transformers films after the first one was like, that was yep. enough and i'm not even talking about the um, the the live action one i checked out after the animated version in 1985 uh, so i, I was <laughs> good for I, you I, I was i was done there and then however these sort of films translate internationally very easily to large audiences pacific rims getting uh, a release in china now china only releases 30 films in the english language every year i think they're, they're allowed 30 western films into its cinemas huge populace obviously and robots hitting each other translates very well to a non-english speaking audience you don't really need to understand much to get what's going on it's robots hitting each other some good some bad um, <laughs> and it's making massive amounts of money there in uh, china so um, undoubtedly there will probably be a Pacific Rim 3 on the back of Chinese people going to see the film over there. And it's doing okay for itself. First week, and it's at number two. Number one. Top of the box office for the second week. It is Peter Rabbit, uh, something that the British hold very dear to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beatrix Potter novels of Peter Rabbit and his escapades. And this time, James Corden voices Peter Rabbit, and we can find out how annoying James Corden is right now. Guys, I have an idea. You remember what Dad used to say to us?
2: Never Never go go into into McGregor's McGregor's garden.
1: Garden. Yeah, but what else did he say to us?
0: Don't electrify a lady hedgehog. Maybe we should rethink some of the other stuff Dad said to us. Oh yeah, like... You can't put lipstick on a pig.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. This is lip balm. It's cherry flavour, so it might appear to be lipstick, but this is lip balm. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. he also used to say, you can't out-clever a fox, so use his cleverness against him. There we go. You get an idea of what that film's about. An all-star cast (laughs) voicing uh, all the rabbits there. Margot Robbie, Daisy Ridley uh, of uh, Star Wars fame as well, doing one of the rabbits. It kind of loosely follows uh, the literary source to an extent, and it is very much geared for a much younger probably people who haven't even touched the books or are aware of the books. It's uh, emulating this sort of idea that uh, the Brits are very quaint and uh, very adventurous and, and everything else. It paints a picture of Britain that's completely unrepresentative. I know it's doing really, really <laughs> well uh, over in the States. I'm not sure if it's out in Canada yet. People
2: have yeah, not... I think it is. It is,
1: is it? And it, 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 I Timely, so. and timely. it's coming out at Easter as well. People oh, of course, yes. People are going to go and see that as well. And you know what? good for it it's it's once again found its audience with young people something that families can enjoy without worrying too much although there is one contentious issue that came up around peter rabbit there is there was a big hoo-ha about a scene where an epi pen is used so peter rabbit and his fellow cohorts they're always terrorizing mr mcgregor and his he's a farmer and taking his carrots and whatnot they deliberately target a character in the film with blackberries and that character is allergic to blackberries and they deliberately do it so they, that person has an allergic reaction and has to use an EpiPen, and there was an idea of, uh, of kind of bullying going on there, and and it was it that wasn't chided or, or seen in a negative light. I I guess you know, if I was, if I had a child and, they were watching that and say, and there was no sort of comeback on the fact that this person had to use an EpiPen and these characters are throwing blackberries at someone with an allergy. It's kind of bad as a parent. What do you, what do you think about that, Carolyn?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't love getting on the outrage bandwagon, but because it's yeah, but because it's a movie for kids, that is a little different. I can and kids are so sensitive. I can imagine that if I had a child who was young, say 5 or 6, the right age for this movie and they suffered from severe allergies mm. as some do, um, and they understood the gravity of an allergic reaction and they saw this on the screen, they might be really disturbed and frightened by it and I can see being a parent if you're you know going out for a fun Easter afternoon to watch this movie and and you get a load of this that you weren't expecting I can see people being irritated allergies are no joke Yeah, you can hear from my voice how ready to (laughs) climb the walls with anger I am over it but you know it's for kids so it's a little different it
1: is you know and and children from a formative age are are, are influenced quite a lot by what they see as well and especially as there's no discipline Disciplinary sort of action behind that, you know, yeah. what kind of lesson is? There's that
2: no taking? comeuppance, so no. yeah, I get that.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, but it's doing really well for itself. Loads of people are going to see it. Number one for the second week, taking just over 15 million pounds. That is the box office top 10 for this week, dated up to the 29th of. March. If you have seen any of the films or if you have any opinions on going to cinema at the moment, by all means, get in contact with us in the usual ways. Facebook.com forward slash Film Seekers. Send us an email, hello at Film Seekers or tweet us at Film Seekers on Twitter. We're onto the meat and potatoes of this podcast now. Our feature film comes up after our final break. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three Okay, yeah, thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, You can listen to the In Session Film Podcast
2: on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a
1: Cherokee drum. No, 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 no that's not how this works sir
0: and now it's time for our main feature film
1: it is about that time uh for our main feature it is the girl with all the gifts a film from 2016 directed by cole mccarthy based on a novel of the same name by mike carey now caroline you picked this film why yeah. did you pick this film in particular? And let's give give us uh, our listeners an outline as to what happened. So primarily tell us, why, why did you pick this film?
2: So um, one of my side interests is the zombie genre. I pretty much watch every zombie, anything I can get my hand on, even if it's really, really terrible. I don't know what it is about the genre. I just can't get enough of it right now. I don't read everything. There's not a lot to read, actually. But Max Brooks' World War Z, I read that. It was phenomenal. And there's some others here or there. And so when you find a zombie something that's higher brow and really thoughtful and interesting, it's a bit of a diamond in the rough or a gem, I should say, out amongst the rest. And so um, so I get pretty excited about those. And I recently found a really good literature podcast, and they had an episode on the zombie genre. So I listened to that recently, and it mentioned The Girl with All the Gifts. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That was a really excellent movie. And it mentioned it in the context of kind of this broader development of the zombie genre which i do want to get to and so i was trying to think of a good movie to talk with you about and so i thought yeah you know what that one's really worth a rewatch, and it gives me an opportunity to dig into my favorite little side topic here so
1: yeah okay so it it was on my list for 2016 to actually get around to watching and the studio kind of bottled it when they put it out there into the world and, and gave it a much smaller release than initially they were going to and so it kind of fell by the wayside and not many people got around to watching including myself there it's something that we haven't explored on the film seekers podcast uh it's an area that we haven't gone into certainly the zombie genre uh, there's a, a wealth of information to talk about in terms of that and the history within uh cinema and we talk about george romero which we'll probably come on to in due course also it's quite a modern film and there's, there are other things Thematics going on behind just mm-hmm. the zombie, you know, the, the, there are gender issues going on there, there are race issues perhaps going on there that we can see as well. So, can mm-hmm. you explain to us just a couple of lines as to the plot of The Girl sure. with the Gifts?
2: It's post zombie apocalypse uh, by approximately 10 years or so. Um, what's remaining of humanity has kind of coalesced into military bases. Um, you really only get a small perspective on the world, one military base outside of London. They have a lab there where they there's a scientist who's doing um studies to try to find a vaccine. She feels like she's getting close. There's twenty or so children there, and it's mysterious at first because they're strapped into wheelchairs and they're strapped down heavily and when they're released into their like prison cells to sleep at night, you know all the guns are on them and You can clearly see that these these military type personnel are very leery of them and yet it's jarring because the little girl it focuses on is so sweet and she knows all the rules and she's so polite and she follows all the rules. But you do eventually discover that these children represent the new hybrid species that is running loose in the world. They were born or they were um, in vitro during the outbreak and so have somehow manifested some kind of not only resilience to the fungal spores that caused the zombie apocalypse in this case, but um, they've internalized some of the zombie characteristics. So they're cannibalistic and they can go into this frenzied state where they the intelligence, the normal human intelligence that they otherwise have, recedes. And this animalism comes out and takes over them until they get their prey and eat and kind of are able to go back to normal. So that's why, of course, the military people find them so dangerous. So what happens is the military facility is breached. Mm -hmm. they have to evacuate and we have just a handful of characters including our main girl the little zombie girl Melanie who flee and otherwise it follows a more typical zombie narrative where you have people in the wilderness that are trying to survive and trying to get to the next place and and that kind of thing so for a really brief synopsis I hope that
1: works Absolutely and we will be going on to spoilers but we'll be telegraphing them towards the end of our conversation so if if you haven't seen the film uh, we do encourage you to to go and watch it and then we will put some notes in the podcast notes below so you can skip over that bit and we will actually announce before we go into spoiler territory just so you can miss those bits so it doesn't spoil the film for you overall. So yeah, the film focuses on uh, Melanie, played by Senia Nanua, a a newcomer into acting. Uh, They found her uh, in the casting as the very last girl that they interviewed for the part they'd Hmm. gone through about 200 girls and it was a bit fairy tale that the last person that they they cut they had an audition for she was perfect for it and there's definitely a a sort of endearing nature and and goodness that comes out of this character of melanie and the way it's played as well Mm -hmm. and the way that she became the way she is is explained in this little clip that we've got here dr cordwell
0: What am I? We don't really have a term for it.
1: But you know where I came from. Tell me. Please.
0: Sergeant Parks and his people used to go into the cities on retrieval runs. On one of those visits, they found something else. Neonates, newborns, infected, very definitely hungries. But different from anything we'd seen, they were still able to think, to interact with their environment. In many ways, they behaved like real people
1: and we won't spoil any more of that because there is a little bit more to that story uh, which, is, <laughs> yeah. which is which is a good reveal actually and, and it may take you aback so uh, that is Dr Caldwell who works in this facility experimenting on these uh, young people it turns out um, to discover a cure I guess played by Glenn Close obviously a veteran actor of uh, stage and screen and remarkably cold in the way that she uh, goes about mm-hmm. her business and I guess you have to be when you're dissecting children at, at such a, a such a, a level um, uh, and in great contrast to the character of Helen Justineau played by Gemma Arterton who is uh, their teacher essentially she goes into this facility all the children as you said are lined up in their wheelchair strapped in by the heads strapped in by the arms it's quite horrifying at first when you see yeah. this to see young children uh, vulnerable children in such a position being treated worse than prisoners I would say and then being taught some of the most basic stories in a classroom environment it's just horrific and um there's a great contrast between the two the two women characters there of, of uh, glenn Close's doc cold very cold doctor and then helena helen justino's teacher who is much more warm and almost motherly to to some of the children especially melanie in the film I guess from the perspective of the zombie pantheon, it does things a lot differently. Now the zombie sort of tropes uh, that we're used to has has moved on in the last decade or so in some of the stories. You mentioned World War Z. Uh, I can think of 28 days later and even 28 Mm -hmm. weeks later. Certainly pushed on what we typically think of zombies on screen. I think that most of what we we see as uh, the the sort of undead and uh, the brainless undead are quite slow-moving characters. Characters. They right. they're not. They're not. They they almost seem otherworldly. They, they they've lost all their human characteristics. It all comes from um, Haitian folklore, right? So so zombies are seen as someone who has half a soul. So then to, to 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 be a human being, they have to have a whole soul, obviously. And and they seem to have lost something. So they're seen seen as something else. Is there is there something I'm missing here in terms of, of zombies? You must know much more about this than I do. Oh,
2: there's more to the story. It's fascinating. Yeah, you're right. um, The idea does come from Haiti. I guess there was um, a strange international journalist that would write back about um, his unusual experiences, and and he heard about the so-called zombie um, in the Caribbean, and he wrote about his experience being shown. Some locals said um, he was asking a lot of locals about zombies, and he was getting a wide variety of answers. And so um, some people said to him, do you want to see uh, a zombie? There's three. Down the street right now, and so he went. And what he saw were um, people working in sugarcane fields. I guess the the state of slavery there was so horrific, the state that these people were in, who were working in these fields. The term for zombie, um, in one of its iterations, had been applied to these people that were expected to be dead, partly dead. And he wrote about this, and it was picked up in early early uh, American films. So there's an early 1930s something film, I think, called uh, White Zombie. Mm-hmm. And it actually credits this journalist. So this is kind of... Um, and there was a drink. I guess there was a cocktail. And so um, the cocktail's actually given some credit for, for um, stabilizing the popularity of the notion. But uh, yeah, so this is the really early version of the zombie. Uh, there, It's often associated with voodoo. Mm-hmm. It, usually you only have one... It, He's under the influence of a spell or some magic or something like that. And it wasn't until later we had zombies begin to appear in some Hollywood stuff and also pulp fiction, like the really early genre fiction mm-hmm. in magazines and um and stuff like that so it was kind of a figure there and apparently it shifted to what we now think of as the more the george A. romero version of the zombie the hordes of slow shuffling zombies actually comes from the mid-century experiences with wars this uh the concentration camps and the horror of all of these emaciated half-dead uh masses of people and also. Some of the, um, I think the Korean War, uh, some of these really unfortunate uh, circumstances where um, where you had a whole lot of people that went through terrible experiences and a whole lot of people dying, so, unfortunately.
1: So, so prisoners of war who essentially don't have any uh, advocacy or any sort of impetus in, in in their outer world because it's all been taken away from them because they are essentially yeah. entrapped and they've had anything that made them human. Taken away from them to to, it to to, to a degree.
2: it's really sad and horrible to think about this. Like, we, we think of it now as such a fun, meaningless mm. outlet, the zombie. Um, but unfortunately, it's got um, some bases in some really sad things like plantation slavery and and uh, the Holocaust. And uh, But when you think about it, too, even in our fun iterations, the zombie apocalypse is a pretty seriously sad. Like, my dad will not watch The Walking Dead, no matter how good I tell him it is, because um, he just finds it too depressing. Right. So, So that's fair. I I couldn't get through Children of Men. Again, I don't think that's zombies, but it's apocalypse, right? It's just right. very depressing stuff. Uh, so there is definitely that underlying seriousness there sometimes. But um, George A. Romero kind of gave it a new boost. But the latest phase with, uh, you mentioned World War Z, uh, 28 days later, has focused more on this idea of global pandemics and contagion. Yeah. And that's when they've sped up the fear of a contagion running rampant and, and getting away from you too quickly to be able to contain is definitely present in this newer iteration of the zombie and world war Z took that to an even new level where the zombie itself was fast which um whether well,
1: they they, they in, in world war Z i seem to recall they uh sort of make formations almost like ants would you know there's there's some sort of right. semblance of intelligence the hive they're making mind. yeah the hive mind they're making structures to to get to a helicopter up in the air so they they form uh um, bond of bodies so they can get high enough to do that and it's there seems to be less of this sort of brainless activity of just murmuring along to try and i don't know uh, get some sort of life force by eating the flesh of human being this cannibalistic sort of element that was brought into the zombie genre quite early on as well it, it makes it even more menacing doesn't it the fact that there's some almost deliberance behind that and there's that intelligence behind these these zombified people that perhaps before you could outwit them and and now it's a uh, a different game isn't it because they 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 yeah. have it they have that intelligence behind them it's it's, it's really really fascinating i think the, the uh, i think 28 days later obviously came out before world war z and that was the first time i ever saw zombies that could move at <laughs> that speed and it it was truly truly petrifying i was like well yeah. okay before you could take your time think about your plan what you're going to do right. and now you haven't got that time, and it's it's almost like that slasher, uh, like Freddy's after you. Uh, you know, the boogeyman, the zombie has definitely definitely changed in the last ten to fifteen years, and and I think to its credit as well, and, and to its benefit. How do you feel about the, the 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 change? Because obviously there are things like The Walking Dead, which still have the the slow Romero zombies going on as well, and that that's
2: intentionally seems- so. Actually, they've modelled them on Romero very uh, very meticulously. Okay, see, I tuned yeah.
1: I tuned out. Down- <laughs> of the walking dead and as an aside to our conversation around the girl with all the gifts i kind of got bored with it because we were having the same stories every week someone would make a dumb decision and that would that would <laughs> yeah. let all the zombies in and yeah. i was like come on i've seen this actually it's just different characters doing to be
2: honest the last two seasons have been really um well season six first half was quite good season seven i thought was a just a wash and this season hasn't been much better i think you're right i think you can only go so far like you do have to start recycling stories or you either make it or you don't but you don't kind of keep going in this limbo for years you know and i think open-ended storylines sometimes just don't work out as well
1: and what draws you to the genre of zombie films i mean what what is it about them
2: to be honest i think the the challenge of being in a a changed landscape so that you have to approach everything in your immediate vicinity very differently. There's something about that survival instinct and the the mental challenge of figuring out how to deal with the landscape. In The Walking Dead, especially uh, through their best seasons, um, the zombies were always in the background. And what was really interesting was, um, you know, people were renegotiating a morality. If you take away the old rules of society, you take away the protective infrastructure that we've managed to build up over thousands of years, then the rules of the game change and all of a sudden something that would have been morally questionable before isn't anymore and so i find that really fascinating and i think um the girl with all the gifts gets a little bit into that as well it's pulling the r- rug out from under your feet philosophically so yeah that is what i've really liked about that show in particular
1: in in terms of uh, global pandemic and stuff so what fascinates you is the way that people react to uh, a global panic and and, and without this the, the no scent. it's
2: the way they react to each other to each other you know you can put like a, a milk toast salesman and a uh, receptionist in a room together and you've got the zombie apocalypse going on outside and this these would be two very boring people in any other setting you put them in the zombie apocalypse and all of a sudden the survival instinct comes out and right. one of them is going to attack the other one and or or maybe not or maybe they're going to form a really unusual alliance and you're going to see some really different skills come out and they're going to you know succeed but you see some really interesting things about people when they're put in this kind of duress
1: so sure i guess because you know essentially uh as you said like uh, a milk toast sort of manager type and a receptionist uh, let's make the assumption here not that we should one's male and once female right
2: oh sorry look at me going to stereotypes yeah totally
1: (laughs) okay so we'll make the assumption that the receptionist is female and uh, the um, the manager is male when the zombie apocalypse happens hierarchical structures completely collapse and you know you can then take the the receptionist then makes her own place in the world and within that uh, dynamic between the two she can then illustrate her leadership qualities and you know they become important and they're not judged against anything else because they are constructing their own hierarchy between themselves and that is absolutely fascinating.
2: One of the strongest characters in the Walking Dead series is Carol and she started the series as um, a terrified uh, wife uh, who is a victim of regular um, serious physical abuse from her husband. Mm, It takes her about... three seasons to get to the point where you don't see that old Carol anymore. And what's interesting is her strength and ability to survive that abuse is really what makes her so strong in the zombie apocalypse. And so you know, so they key in on these things very particularly. Uh, everybody's favorite Daryl uh, was a uh, low class nobody with a bad family, absent absent alcoholic parents, mm-hmm. um in and out of jail before the zombie apocalypse, but manages to be a really valuable team member. You know, later in life, so people just have these second lives, and it's just it was done really well uh, until the stories got to be yeah, little little much,
1: but yeah, a little. Uh, I, I felt that a little bit repetitive but it's interesting how you you talk about the story arcs of characters within The Walking Dead and how they gradually change over time I guess society doesn't collapse in The Girl with All the Gifts everyone stays pretty much where they are they may shift in the shuffle a little bit they're
2: still civilised yeah because
1: you still have uh, Paddy Considine's character who is a a sergeant in the army who is uh, overseeing all of these uh, scientific experiments with all these young people uh, and, and, and the science as well taking overall order um, still remains as a character who oversees and, and, and is almost um, the protector of the group that's still that's still there as well that doesn't really ever change
2: to be honest though I don't know if you picked it up but his character arc happened earlier and so they I'll save this for the end because um, okay. it's got but yeah, <laughs> it, there is more of a character arc for him so it's just not necessarily in the timeline that we see so
1: okay in terms of the the girl with all the gifts what else brings you to this story in particular and you've talked about how it differentiates from from other things I I, I think from my perspective as I hadn't seen it until last week when you told me to watch it because this is what we wanted to talk about (laughs) there was a lot of uh, similarities with something that I I really love so I play computer games judge me on that for whatever reason oh are
2: you going to talk about The Last of Us
1: I am going to talk about The Last of Us yay yeah I know
2: that one there
1: are huge similarities with The Last of Us Uh, The Last of Us is a a post-apocalyptic game about two characters a young girl who is infected but doesn't show outward signs of infection infection. Um, The infection creates um, hybrids and zombies and it is a spore-like infection. Um, So very similar to The Girl with All the Gifts. It's an airborne contagion um, transmitted by fluids and spores in the air. Uh, There's only the two in The Last of Us and uh, in terms of The Girl with All the Gifts there's many more characters and I believe in the source novel you see the story being played out from different perspectives whereas in Mm -hmm. the film it's pretty much told from the young girl Melanie point of view which is one of the deviations uh, there is another deviation we'll come into that in spoilers as well it's only a minor deviation from the source novel for the most part it's quite faithful it's just the fact that it doesn't shift perspectives as it does in the novel i, I guess in terms of the last of us I, yeah i found a huge amount of similarities uh, with that the last of us was a, an extremely strong story for its time and all of this I guess all sort of happened similar time The Girl With All The Gifts was written at a similar time as as The Last of Us came out and I couldn't help but make comparisons between the two things uh, how much of you uh, uh, how much are you aware Carrie Lynn, of of The Last of Us and, and its impact and did that affect your enjoyment of The Girl With All The Gifts Uh
2: to be honest I watched a, a YouTuber play it uh, my son and <laughs> I watched all the videos together right? so I saw the game Gameplay just straight through from front to back, and uh, and I really really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was excellent storytelling through through video game. And it was on the second recent watch that I made some connections between the two, particularly the creativity of the idea that it's a fungal infection mm. um, was the, was what really made me notice it. But uh, when I first watched it, I hadn't seen The Last of Us. So um, I just liked it for being a, a thoughtful zombie narrative.
1: It's a, it's a remarkable piece of video game telling. Um, I think definitely at the, the higher echelons of video game and narrative stream structure um and really affecting as well yeah definitely something that uh, someone's taken a lot of time and care and attention to to tell that story in a in a, in a very faithful way and and more of a I um i guess a, a considered manner as well um you know it's not just someone a, a big baddie at the end and you know the typical structures within computer games is actually right. much more to it and i think yeah. it's a very character driven game as well yeah. and that's something that can get lost in that medium it's interesting how. We spoke about uh, this uh, this fungus that affects both The Last of Us and The The Girl of All The Gifts. I did a little bit of reading uh, for the first okay. time in my life and <laughs> uh, regarding uh, The Girl of All The Gifts. So they wanted to ground it in reality of something that could happen. They researched a parasitic fungus that causes zombie-like behaviour in ants. Now, the fungus oh, is, yes. is yeah. called, excuse my Latin here, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. And apparently it's one of about 200 species and it grows on and in insects. So basically, first it invades the host's body, takes over its brain, and then erupts from its body to disperse the spores. And and that, I guess, is kind of like the zombification of it. And then it, it kind of forces the animal to hibernate or something in a particular area so it takes over its uh, central nervous system and makes it in its final stages before it explodes go in the most i guess the, the most effective area in which it will affect more ants in this case and it's remarkable how a fungus can can do yeah. that you know you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't consider that and and so they wanted to ground the idea of, of zombification i guess in in the real world as well and uh in in the go of all the gifts they're never referred to as zombies they're called hungries right right yeah which is a, a very distinct difference uh, and i think in 28 days later they're also not referred to by the z word as well.
2: They they do that as well in Walking Dead. Yeah, then, every, yeah, every group in the Walking Dead has their own term so that's where walkers comes from but they also use biters and there's a bunch of others, but yeah.
1: I, I guess that's uh, possibly a, a depowering of the group, you know it's not, you know, it's not seen as a, a such a threat but call them by a different name because surely uh, the word zombie is uh, unilateral in all these sorts of different timelines and um, they would have, these characters in the Walking Dead and the Last of Us and the Go, I guess, would have heard the word zombie before this outbreak, so I guess it wouldn't have been a a sort of alien term to them, but. It's interesting how they, they never give the these uh, this group of uh, or this infection or this whatever it may be this invasion uh, a, a name as powerful as zombie because I guess it allows them to step back a little bit and feel a little bit less threatened by them to an extent I, I don't know maybe maybe yeah. but I, I really like the fact that they they didn't just go right this is a, a, an outbreak of whatever virus and they they actually went away looked at it and say right how can we apply the natural world to something that could typically happen and, and the way that the Girl with all the gifts came about was that the book was being written at the same time as the film was being brought to screen yeah so yeah, yeah. that's right and that's that's remarkable because to have a finished product I guess uh, mirror what's on the screen uh, quite closely apart from the, a couple of moments is and and being written at the in in duality so Mike Carey uh, wrote the screenplay as well for this film so he obviously had an idea of where both mediums were going the book and and the film and tied them up quite closely so this book is revered in literary um, circles you've read it right
2: i actually haven't oh. but i've put it yeah no i've put it on the list i have to read it because it just sounds
1: really good the, the, from reading some of these book reviews on it um, people have said that the actual film is very very faithful to the source novel and and does it justice and quite often when you get adaptations of literary sources um you can get quite the converse and you you obviously you will obviously lose a little bit of the translation and the richness of a book in in a two-hour film apparently the general consensus is they've done a good job in this case so that was really really nice to see I, i kind of guess i want to explore some of the deeper meaning and this is your expertise, Carolyn. I'm, I am the layman. You're going to have to tell me some of the things that go on in The Girl of All the Gifts and why it's culturally significant and, and significant to the society and the zombie genre as a whole and why we're exploring it today. So is there anything like you really want to get into?
2: Yeah, I, I think this is a really excellent example of a strain of argumentation that comes to us from post, post-colonialism. And that is the question of Uh, who gets to be treated as fully human, which means benefiting from full human rights. And this may seem clear cut, um, but in colonial contexts, it certainly wasn't. And there's other contexts now where um, sometimes this, in speculative fiction, um, it's a great way to use that landscape as a metaphor for areas in real life where the issue of who gets (laughs) basically full status as a human and that sounds terrible who wouldn't get full status as a human right but unfortunately uh laws can really discriminate against some groups in some areas that in effect don't give them um the full full protection of rights um so that's that's a particular wing of post-colonial thought and uh and you can you can imagine how, how those questions would become relevant in a post-colonial context mm. um and so yeah so so this is a great example of a speculative fiction type of story that's able to ask some difficult questions about that because you might have noticed in the clip, Doctor Caldwell, when she's talking to Melanie, says that the the Hungries look like they think like real people, implying but you're not actually real people, and that's um, kind of the central problem between our, our main adult characters is that they all uh, respond to Melanie a little differently. So. Dr. Caldwell, uh, played by Glenn Close. She's the scientist who uh, is the one that's trying to make a vaccine um, by dissecting these children. So she clearly sees them as very disposable. And, and she, she dehumanizes
1: them doesn't she yeah
2: though, exactly right yeah. yeah that's how she manages to to do that she's quoted as commenting that the hungries or that these children because they're not exactly the same as hungries convincingly imitate human behaviors she says in one case whether or not she's making herself feel better about what she does mm. or Uh, being the scientific type that she is, maybe, maybe she's fully committed to that point of view. And of course, she sees her research as being towards a higher goal. She wants to save humanity. And so for her, her class of organism deserves the world. And you guys, we need to exterminate you, get rid of you. And because of the way the story is set up, we can sympathize with Dr. Caldwell to the extent that that's usually the group we are rooting for in these zombie movies, right? We do want to exterminate that herd. Um, normally we do want all everything to go back to normal and for the humans to survive. So because of that tradition in the plot lines, we're set up to sympathize with her but then the way she's presented so unsympathetically, we're like, oh, you know, it makes you question cool. your assumptions there. So I think that's, that's really well done. But, but
1: are um, we not sympathizing with the humans plights because we are humans ourselves and so naturally Im- I don't know we could imagine but i, I would but assume the, that if but the
2: movie works to problematize that sympathy okay. that's what i'm saying yeah and Miss Justineau, of course, uh, adds to that. She's the teacher because uh, she she has all of this um, interpersonal reaction or interaction with the children. I don't know why they're teaching them. I couldn't figure that out. If you're just going to put them on the operating table label later, why would you bother? Maybe they're maybe that's a way of testing their intelligence. Actually, that's probably what it is. They're wanting to see how much these kids can learn. And so Miss Justineau is their teacher, but. In being their teacher, she's come to be fairly fond of them, Mm. and they present as normal children, Right, and apparently in the novel, it goes quite a bit further with the idea that she's in denial of them even having zombie characteristics and being cannibalistic. Uh, it takes her quite a while in the novel to be exposed to that response in them, whereas we see that in the movie, like within the first fifteen or twenty minutes, they set it up so you sympathize with Miss Justino and you're wondering why these kids are being treated so brutally, mm. and then miss justineau and the audience sees sees the demonstration of the children's uh potential for violence and so you kind of get this education but apparently in the novel she's much more in denial she has quite a bond with melanie who's your typical student that uh she's she, kind of the she's teacher's, a teacher's pet.
1: pet yeah exactly yeah, yeah
2: she knows all the answers she knows all the rules she wants to show everybody she knows all the rules if uh, you don't check her bonds properly she's going to remind you <laughs> and so she's that little girl, you know, yeah. and she's so sweet. The actress is so wonderful.
1: Helen Helen Justino, the um, character played by Gemma Arterton, the teacher. Um, I felt like the, the, the relationship between her and Melanie, the young girl that we were talking about, was like maternal. And, and from what we know about Helen Justino's character, she's, mm, this is going to sound quite, um, maybe even chauvinistic to an extent here. She's not attached to anyone. She has no children that we know of. And perhaps she is living her Maternal instincts through Uh. Melanie
2: okay I didn't I didn't see it that way I maybe I don't know um I just get I that mean, sense
1: because she okay. she seems quite endeared to to being protective yeah. of children and yeah. she seems quite unattached and uh, there may be a backstory her child she may have had a child she may have had a, a partner she you know they may have died but it appears right. not to be the case it appears that she um you know in this world she is at childbearing age and she has no children there is there appears to be no possibility of children in the, in the dynamics in in which she's living in within this military right. base, yeah. And that's true. she is kind of living vicariously her life through 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 melanie's presence as being the daughter that she never had i just get the sense that, that that overrides everything that uh melanie stands for in terms of her alter ego as as being an infected hungry she just sees her as as her own child and and, and that closeness you know whether the the teacher pupil bond goes a little bit further than than, than just that. Um, I, just, there,
2: I think there could be also a kind of idea that because she's a stories person or a humanities person or something about the role of the teacher, that that in itself makes her more sensitive.
1: Okay. Are you saying that anyone who teaches humanities um, yeah. is, is a bit of a wet blanket and a, and no, a, and a wet, bit more softy and sentimental?
2: No, wet blanket, no. but um, <laughs> That's but a I, strong term. Yeah. Uh, but as a as a humanities um, scholar, I or, you know, aspiring scholar, you know, we are always having to go to bat for the idea that the humanities is is really quite integral to understanding ourselves as a species. Mm. Um, it's not just about um, appreciating pretty poetry. You know, it really has something fundamental to offer in terms of um, of understanding ourselves and also having critical thinking skills and asking larger questions. Right. And and so a lot. Uh, oh, I'm just thinking a along those lines for the reason that potentially Miss Justineau is seeing a bigger picture or questioning the uh just grinding up chewing up and spitting out these children I'm the story doesn't well I, the story gives us a little to go on that I'll try to back up my point but it's certainly not uh overhanded like, like served to us that way
1: I guess, am I right in thinking you're saying that because she's a humanities teacher, she's much more in touch with her emotions, and if we can contrast that with someone who studies science, uh, Glenn Close's scientific right. character, she's much more colder, right. out of touch, sees humans as functional uh, in, right. a, 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 and, and, and in a scientific manner, whereas Helen Justino, the teacher character, Gemma Arterton, humanises everyone and, and brings that warmth and, and, and feeling that um, no scientific paper can really really write down and, and observe
2: well and there's evidence for this in the very um, very beginning uh, you may have forgotten this tiny detail about when um, the children are first wheeled into their classroom uh, Miss Justineau has to be late for 5 or 10 minutes for some reason and so there's another woman there who's a sub and she's a bad sub and she's not doing a very good job and she she's opened the science textbook to the periodic table and she's barking at them to, for them to repeat back to her the names of the elements and the the number I can't even remember yeah, what the it was numbers the, for the,
1: the atomic numbers of, of okay the elements,
2: yes. yes and so she's barking at them and most of them don't remember except of course Melanie has it all memorized so that's the atmosphere that's in the classroom and then fortunately Miss Justino comes comes in within a few minutes and she um, is apologetic almost to the children she's like well we haven't even studied this quite yet and ushers her out and whatnot and then they have their classroom together and the tone softens and they're all they all look up to Miss Justino and love her and Melanie says can we please have a story and she says oh I'll get in trouble you know I'm not we're not supposed to do stories right now and she says well how about a Greek uh, mythology uh, then you can call it history and so she's cajoled and persuaded to to tell them a story which is of course what children love best right but it also goes to these these ideas about um, contrasting the humanities with, uh, with science and she tells them the story of pandora which of course is the entire story in a nutshell
1: do you want to explain the story for anyone who who's not aware of the story of pandora
2: and the way it's told in this particular um, setting is is important as well. So the way Miss Justino tells it is Pandora is a girl who is given um, this box of gifts, but she's warned not to open it. And uh, but she, of course, she can't uh, she can't help herself. She opens the box, and all of the evil things of the world come out. And this is the Greeks rationalizing for why bad things happen to good people, or where envy comes from, or whatever the case, um, disease all the bad things in the world come out of Pandora's box and part of the imagery there is that once they're out you can't get them back in Mm -hmm. she tells the story as Pandora looks down into the bottom and at the very bottom of the box is hope and so that's kind of as far as they get in the story there and then they have a writing assignment Melanie writes a story which is pretty much the plot of the movie but but basically the she fantasizes about herself saving the wonderful Miss And it's this very sweet and touching story where where uh, she saves her from some danger you can see like and also with the title, The Girl with All the Gifts, that Gifts reference goes right back to um, the story of Pandora. And The Girl with All the Gifts, of course, is Melanie throughout our story. So Melanie is being equated with Pandora. And what I think is cool is that you can um, you can read it in two different ways. It's ambiguous about how you understand that. And the first one is really apparent, and that is that what's been released out of the box is the, is the fungal infection that has put all of humanity at uh, at risk and can't be put back in the box right. but the hope at the bottom of the box is these children that might be able to be turned into a vaccine so that's the most immediate version of the or interpretation of the story the second interpretation i'll save till after the spoilers but by the time you get there right there's this this lovely ambiguity ambiguity to it it's not as as not as clear as it first seemed so so i love that i love stories that put this the importance of storytelling as part of the story Uh, being a literature person that just thrills me right
1: did you not feel that the the it's an allegory is it metaphor allegory i get the two confused
2: well they're related in this case yeah because it's a transposition of the story that makes it an allegory
1: okay so the allegory of um pandora a little bit too on the nose when it comes into the, the certainly the latter parts and the way the story goes or do you think it's just a framing device for the whole story to play out
2: um yeah i would say it's a framing device i mean if you're one of those people that just can't stand references and mm. allegory then it's going to rub you the wrong way um if you like that kind of nod to literaryism, then you might feel differently
1: that, that works okay so I, 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 I get I, I get that that's 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 cool all I mean right. it didn't really affect me because very deliberately obvious because there's there's a deeper meaning behind this and I, I need to uncover what that that meaning is because it can't just be the fact that Melanie is Pandora right? right all the way through there's there's much more to this than 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 on the surface of that I see on your notes that you've sent me kindly there's some gender issues and, and feminism uh coming through in, in in some of the characters Do you want to kind of discuss what what goes on here in terms of... Um
2: yeah, so so just the fact that um, our most important characters are all women, none of their characters have anything to do with their relationship to a man. So sometimes the only reason, you know, the only reason a, ca- a female character is in a movie is because she's somebody's wife or she's somebody's mother. You don't have any of that here. Um, no, and they they're are all—they're just- all unattached,
1: aren't they? Every single woman yep. is, is is not attached to a partner or, or anyone else at all. in this one is, it's remarkably refreshing.
2: Yeah, and there's no budding romance. Like there is a man or two in the film. That There's no budding romance or sex whatsoever in the movie. They're just people who have stories to tell. And so for me, it's really refreshing to see women who are just people, like you would you know real people that you might meet in the walk of life uh because there's it's an easy mistake to make to imagine that uh, a feminist woman in a movie might be the kick-ass you know woman that fights and she looks great fighting in heels and and uh no that's not another that's not a feminist character right just because a woman is uh imitating the actions of a man doesn't make her a feminist does that make does that make her
1: empowered though
2: well see that's i think where people get, get confused. It's like, well, this woman's empowered, so she must be feminist. But committing violent acts is not necessarily empowering. And a lot of times um the the kick ass woman is just another version of a man's fantasy woman. So so it's still serving those those fantasies. And so in that sense she could be feminist in other ways, obviously, depending mm-hmm. on how round the character is. But a lot of times what we see is being put forward as as uh, confused ideas about what a feminist character in a movie is is women that are imitating men
1: sure and, and I, that's I, you see that a lot don't you i mean yeah i, I think about some of the early examples of this and, and a great purveyor of of this sort of ideal in film is Luc besson the the, the french director and he made a film in the 80s called uh, nikita which is about oh uh,
2: yeah, yeah right
1: which is about uh a uh a woman Hitman, right, and, and it kind of was fresh at the time because you hadn't seen that sort of character in a large screen production on screen. It was then remade in in uh, the English language as the Assassin with Bridget Fonda. Uh, whatever happened to Bridget Fonda? <laughs> Even up to last year, that's that same sort of ideas being used uh, with uh, Charlize Theron in
2: yes, Atomic yes. Blonde
1: last year. Now, right. this is a film that I thoroughly love. It sounds like you, you had issues with it. And, no, 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 I
2: don't have issues at all. I love action movies. Okay. Um, I saw Atomic Blonde. It was a lot of fun. Um, why did that? Why would? Why did
1: that differentiate from your your theory that you've put out there of, of of women characters who are emulating uh, typical male behavior? Uh, why? Why did Atomic Blonde do that for you, or or, or did it? Did yeah, it
2: she's just she's not an she's not an icon of feminism. She's not what you would you wouldn't point to that movie and say, oh, there's there's a good feminist movie, um, just because she's a strong woman. Uh, in the physical sense, does not mean that she's feminist. So that's where I'm making the differentiation there. Um, she's she's just a, a fairly flat character that is embodying uh, just one iteration of male fantasy women. Right. And so as long as her character is just in the service of male fantasy. Yes. Then no, it's not feminist. I enjoy the movie because I can you know I can enjoy any movie I want, so right. I have fun. I'm not cool. look I'm you know, I wouldn't do a podcast on that movie. I do understand how people who are not as familiar with academic feminism, especially, um, I'm I'm certainly no expert, but I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to some academic feminism. And some of these nuances are are drawn out and you realize, okay, just cause a woman's tough doesn't make her feminist. Just like, just because a politician's a woman, I'm not going to vote for her just because she's a woman. Getting away from gender as being the defining characteristic is what feminism's all about, right? right? Feminism's about people are people. Mm. People have their own stories because people are interesting. They don't have a story worth telling because they're a man, or we're not going to not vote for men because they're men. Mm-hmm. We need to get away from these judgments based just on on gender. And so that's more where I think the best versions of feminism are. And so so that's why this movie is exciting because we have a woman of a certain age who is this like the the strong smart scientist like how often do you see that right right um she's not a grandma she's not um she doesn't have to be helped up and downstairs none of that junk right um oh, come on Glenn, Glenn also...
1: Glenn close isn't that old come on let's give us some credit at least
2: oh but... but but you know what i mean in movies we go to these stereotypical places old women are just grandmas or they're uh witches you can get the old woman witch type of trope mm-hmm. as well um otherwise we don't have a lot of use for old women in, or older excuse me older women in uh, in movies um because would my son be interested in reading a novel that features an an older woman no <laughs> okay. right so um, i use my son just because i brought him no, up earlier sure. no no you know i'm not trying to throw shade no, on him no, at no, all no, but, no, absolutely
1: yeah. not no but but i guess that the these old, older women are not in the service of of men or, or being um a sort of a, a that that maternal character looking uh, looking after other people. Uh, yes, that's where this uh, doctor played by uh, Glenn Close, Dr. Caroline Caldwell, I guess, yeah, is refreshing. It's, it's, it's an interesting character. Yeah. But then, but then conversely, Gemma Arterton fulfills all the things that we've just, no, talked, it's true. that, uh, that it's we've true. just talked about. She is that m- uh, maternal motherly sort of character that's embodying some of these characteristics that we stereotypically associate with women and perhaps to, to, to the denigration of her character um, kind of, puts her in that mold of women and women's roles of, of what we're trying to get away from and just see people, as you said, as people and what would have been good yes. in this film yeah. would have been to see some of the, the, the army, uh, people, uh, some of the 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 soldiers as women would it, wouldn't that have been sort of well like there
2: a... there was a woman or two soldier
1: oh yeah of course um, there was yeah yeah
2: there was at the beginning there's a few red shirts that go down fairly early and uh, I will say just a slight defense of Miss Justino um Judith Butler don't know if you're familiar with that feminist writer but she makes the differentiation at one point in her writing um, about a character that chooses motherhood freely as opposed to having it put on her. Right. I don't know how much value there is in that distinction. With Miss Justineau, she's at least not... Soupy and afraid all the time mm-hmm. and overprotective. Like you're right, there's there's um, the instinct to care, mm-hmm. um, but she she does choose it freely and it's it's not overdone. Okay. So, but you're right, you're right. Um, that is there and that does play to a stereotype. Um, but the fact that the the main character is not only a young girl but also a young black girl, I think, is really significant as well because she represents so many intersections of marginality. Mm-hmm. um black women of course are one of the most marginalized groups uh, more marginalized than than black men certainly mm-hmm. um, and children as well are considered to be on the margins so the fact that you have this this story centering around this really strong intelligent character who uh represents these traditional types of marginalization as well as being this this species mm-hmm. that's particularly margin- marginalized in the book or in the movie there's a triple so, a triple
1: whammy for Melanie there she's that's she's got right going on uh, that's right but the interesting thing about the film is it never alludes to her race at all you know there's never there's never a thing saying you know you are different from all the other not all the other characters but you are different because not only are you a, a hungry but you are also of uh, of black descent um that's there's, true there's never, and, and never and, flagged Which kind of, I I guess, could be seen in a positive light as well. You know, she is what we were just talking about, seen as being a human being, not defined by her gender or her race, you know, so that's kind of cool. But equally, I I think there's, there's some wealth in perhaps mining some of the fact that she does have... Black descendants. And and we talked about the origins of zombies being in Haitian uh, yes. folklore. And, you know, obviously Haitians are of black origin and uh, where this whole idea of zombies came from. You know, there, there are parallels there between this young... Black girl, uh, she's mixed race, so bi- biracial is the politically correct term. So she, she is of, uh, of of biracial descent, and that in itself, the, the mixing of two species, I guess, uh, um, to, oh. to, to form a human there. So, you know, the, the, you are right, you're completely right. There, there's a lot going on with that character of Melanie, and not just because she is uh, an infected hungry. Uh, you know, uh, as you said, her gender and her race, and that feeds into the margin and then all these other parallels with the, the folklore of, of zombification. It's, it's fascinating. I don't know if that was deliberate or, or not. Or you'd, you'd like to think so. That's a
2: good question, yeah.
1: Um, I'd like to think that um, perhaps Mike Carey had deliberately cast or or this girl going into that role. And um, if anyone's okay. listening... And if you haven't seen The Girl With All The Gifts, you need to pause this podcast right now. (laughs) And uh, we will give you a countdown of five uh, to pause it, make yourself a cup of tea, go and watch the film, and then resume this podcast at another point. Don't forget to resume this podcast because you'll miss all the interesting stuff when we go into the spoiler territory. So five, four, three, two one we're on to spoilers we're okay we've got the we've got the green card we can go for it now so let's get into the meats and potatoes of this
2: yeah so i wanted to talk about this the character arcs and how that kind of upturns your entire um, expectations throughout the film. Uh, so the the really crucial event is when Melanie lights the, the pod tower on fire. Uh, it had been explained to us by uh, Dr. Caldwell that um, there's this massive, massive tower growing covered with the fungus in its final kind of phase of evolution, and it's covered with all of these pods, right. and she explains that it takes either um, heat like a fire or a flood for the pods to open and that once they open, we have to take Dr. Caldwell at her word as the expert in this story that she knows what she's talking about. Once all of these pods open, um, she says humanity is just doomed. That's it doomed. The, the pods will, the spores will go through the air so quickly that anybody who's left alive is going to die immediately get turned. And so, um, at, in the clip, we heard Melanie's confrontation with Dr. Caldwell well, there where she asks her about who am I and what's my origin story. And, and so Dr. Caldwell's in her last moments. She has this badly infected cut. She feels like she's going to die soon. She is trying to convince Melanie since Melanie has outsmarted them and they can't just hold her down. To let herself go willingly. She's trying to convince her of the nobleness of her giving herself up in sacrifice to save the human race. For the greater good, right. Right. And so that's when Melanie stops and and she asks the crucial question of the film, which is, well, who says that you get to live? Mm. And she just makes the decision. And she walks out and she lights that thing on fire. And she decides that she and her kind are going to live. So I think that's really interesting because it comes as, I don't know about you, but it comes as a bit of a shock, Right, and I was like, "Really? She just is humanity really all dead? Is that it?" Um, and Mister uh, Sergeant Parks is in the area, so you see him turn. So, so that's I suppose the. Um, reinforcement of the idea that Dr. Caldwell did know what she was talking about. Humanity really is dead. Sergeant Parks distrusted Melanie throughout, right? Um, he was always the cautious one. Yep. He was pushing back against Miss Justineau and saying, like, you just don't realize how dangerous they are. You need to be you need to be more careful. But at the beginning, we have this feeling like Miss Justineau is probably right. Melanie is, is going to be okay and, and hold down these urges and stuff. And then it does seem like sergeant parks is the one who's right after all because um because melanie just up and kills all of humanity.
1: So Sergeant Parks, just to put it into context, is one of the soldiers which goes along with this troop of people who have managed to survive this uh, <laughs> outbreak at the main base and he is kind of the guy who's in charge as, as the military presence played by Paddy Considine and yes, he, as typical military people are, I guess, uh, are mistrusting of anything that they can't see or understand and have control over, <laughs> he um, straps Melanie to the top of a jeep, won't let her ride inside of this uh, tank or slash gmail armored vehicle at all times keeps her at arm's length because uh, he cannot have bearing over what she may or may not do and so so yes uh, and th- this uh, relate the relationship between Melanie and Sergeant Parks is is very uncomfortable and mistrusting all the way through this film. I think he softens towards the end, if I'm honest with you, and that's probably part of Helen Justino, the teacher character, sort of showing Sergeant Parks that there's more to life than that being a, a, a male protector. there's that the, you know almost feels like a, a little family coming together. Not that there's any.
2: There's a moment in the movie where somebody asks him about something and uh about the military and he makes a comment that he's before it all went down as in before like the zombie apocalypse he was not in the military he'd never touched a gun and it was a very different life for him so that's just one tiny little part that's dropped there and then it's when he dies he finds melanie lighting this thing on fire and he asks her why you know and uh that's when she gives her reason and um he talks to her for just a moment Uh, And he is quite a bit softer with because he has warmed up to her some towards the end. But when he's talking to her right in the last moments, he mentions his wife and I think children and you just see a very different man. And so I was reminded of the fact that he mentioned that he'd never been in the military before. And you can see that he had this this um, arc that people do have in in the when the zombie apocalypse hits. He goes from maybe he was that uh, milk toast salesman right but now he's this hardened guy because he's in the zombie apocalypse and at that moment of death that he has with Melanie he's quite a bit softer and his last thoughts are of his his wife whom he loved very much so you can see a little bit more going on with him and I think it's also supposed to remind you as well of what Melanie is just torched I do think you're you're supposed to feel uneasy certainly about uh, Melanie's Sergeant decision.
1: as is a, is a victim of circumstances in that case, and is he not? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. You feel very differently about the man who was set up sort of as a small-time villain mm. in the beginning, right?
1: He's done what this uh, bacterium is doing. It's adapting to its surrounding and it's trying to survive in the best way possible. And for him to survive was to adapt this uh, macho role of uh, male protector because he right. had nothing left in his dying moments. Almost like a redemption. That yeah, I suppose back to his true self. Um, and that that I, I guess that kind of warms you to. Uh, his character as he dies the interesting thing when um melanie sets this giant tower alight with all these spores to then force them to open up and spread the uh the airborne disease uh, far and wide so that uh, her kind uh in in inverted commas can survive? Do you not think going back to this um, real-world uh, application of this parasitic fungus? Do you not think it's the the parasitic fungus taking over her own mind and taking away that humanity? And it's just the idea of the the bacteria trying to survive and and controlling her central nervous system to, to make that decision rather than her as a human being make that decision to to. Set oh, certainly.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think I think that final scene there is supposed to remind you that you've been lulled into this uh, false sense of security with Melanie and all along she's really has been this monster it recalls as well the comment that um Dr. Caldwell states about being very good at imitating Mm, human behaviors so it's like wait a minute has she just been imitating human behaviors all this time I mean I don't think I, I do think there were moments of sincerity for her. It's not like she was looking for her opportunity to slaughter them all. But when she realized what was at stake, mm-hmm. she made the decision to do that and preserve her kind. Survival and, of the fittest, right? You yeah. Know, and selection. so I agree with you. Like, it totally could be the fungus having taken over your her brain. We don't know. No. Um she ends up keeping Dr. Justino in a sealed lab so that she can continue to be her idol, her kind of worshiped idol and she brings the other feral children to learn at her feet. So she kind of puts her in a jar and continues this fantasy that she has. Yeah. But I think it's supposed to leave you uneasy. Like I I think it's supposed to undermine everything you felt about Melanie before. Which well, she she's, so. she's flipped the world upside down, hasn't
1: she? In that yeah. in, in that final scene where her teacher, Helen Justineau, played by Gemma Arterton there, is uh, in this uh, sealed summer house as part of this massive container. Uh, she, you know, she is almost a specimen being uh, contained within she is now the prisoner and uh, Melanie's character is now free to run around and have the liberty that children should have uh, running around having fun and all the rest of it and uh, the Justino character is almost under the enslavement of all these kids that are on the outside uh, keeping her in and you know Justino's character must stay in with those confines otherwise she too will turn in in the book in fact it's slightly different the Helen Justino character is in a hazmat suit and so she's not contained so she's able to, oh. to move about more freely so she comes out in a hazmat suit touches the kids uh, does her teaching and whatnot in the open air uh, so so okay. speak. Uh, but i think it worked better in the film the fact that she's within yeah. this, this greenhouse almost and and kept away and, and, and in prison much in the same way that melanie was in the first instance of when this this film started i i, I think that's a Great parallel to to see. Just to talk about uh, in terms of the, the 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 aesthetics of the film, a wonderful way in which it captures London. I, I saw a lot of landmarks that I I'm aware yeah. of and and everything else, and it's it, it's clearly done on a slightly smaller budget. There are some little tears and stuff that you can see. it's okay, they've they've tried really well to emulate a zombified London as best they can. You know, it's quite a a large task to do with special effects. I think they did it really well. And uh, from what I understand, they sent a drone over Chernobyl to capture...
2: Oh, uh, my goodness. Yeah,
1: so they, they, they captured drone photography over Chernobyl uh, to get some of the landscapes and then CGI'd London's landmarks into that landscape to, to get an okay. idea of, of what it really looks like after a, a global pandemic or a global disaster. And, wow. um, and you know, Chernobyl's um, sort of radiation zone is extremely well-preserved because obviously no one's allowed to go within its confines <laughs> yeah. um, because yeah. it's still extremely radioactive and God knows when, when the half-life of that will recede and people will be able to populate that again but it's a, definitely a no-go for the foreseeable future yeah. and that's where they they obtain a lot of the aerial photography and the backgrounds for that film and it, hmm it didn't take me out of it i felt really really that you know it was a fully construct i love the world building i talk about world building quite a lot i love the world building in this film mm. you really felt part of a zombie apocalypse and you really felt that you were in the position of those characters within that world of being these lone survivors in in this wilderness even in the military camp you have that green filter going on it's all very dingy and dark and mm-hmm. and gr- the green of the the plants and the moss and the, and the, uh, growing on the outside of the uh, the Spores as well are quite. Dark and red, and I, I really kind of li- like that going that thematic of, of color going all the way through. It's, it's beautifully captured, and some mm-hmm. some of the wider shots as well, um, where you have these, these small troop of characters walking in the middle, and you can just see everything on the outside. It just really gave that sense of place and environment, and and I, all the more power to it. I felt really really involved in the film because the world building was so so good. There are some technical shots as well in in the film where we are in the close confines of the army base where Melanie and her fellow hungries are being taught there's some very low angle shots so you get to have an affinity with some of the younger characters you know you you're at that level with them you're low down Mm -hmm. you're talking to them on a level you're not um there's some wonderful tracking shots going up and down the classroom you just get a real good sense of place and intimacy of the close confines and the claustrophobia of being imprisoned within this military base especially where Melanie is in her cell uh counting down the exact amount of seconds before the uh the lights turn out and stuff you you feel right you feel that uh enclosure and um uh, the captivity is exemplified by some of the cinematography as well I think to wrap up our thoughts on the girl with all the gifts and including a star rating at the end here Carolyn what would you Sum up, and how would you sell it to someone who hasn't seen the film?
2: I would give it four stars, maybe four and a half. Um, I would sell it to somebody who um, it already likes the zombie genre, and but is interested in more intellectual zombie fare. So, Uh, and why would you give it only four four stars? I don't know. I guess I reserve the five stars for those knock them out of the park. That's going to be my favorite movie for the next two years. So maybe I'm a little harsh. You're a harsh marker. maybe
1: i am yeah i found this film once again to be ironically an intelligent zombie film <laughs> and in a, in a genre that's been played for laughs and uh, people are missing the the subtext in somebody's films. so Romero's films were revered for being quite gory and out there when they came out uh, the, the initial one The Night of the Living Dead in the 60s and this this dials that down a bit you still have those zombie tropes in there as well so if that's what you're watching this film for to see someone get ripped apart you still get those elements in there but as you said there's much more to take away from this film in terms of the representation of not only gender but also race and 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 as i said the the subtext that underlies it all is uh, there's much more depth to it um so if you do enjoy things like the walking dead and you want to knock it up a level i think the girl with all the gifts deserves your attention four stars for me as well that was our feature film for today we're going to take one more quick break and then we'll be back with our final recommendations.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Jason Michael, and I'm Lee Brady, and we're the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast.
1: We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics—all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee. Brady Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. Let the games begin. A little familiar voice there of Jason Michael, <laughs> who you may know, Carolyn.
2: Yes, I've been on that show a couple of times. Yeah,
1: <laughs> the wonderful uh, Atlantic Screen Connection podcast uh, will be back very shortly with a multitude of interviews. I believe that they've had stored in the can for a while. They've taken a wee break at the moment, but if you haven't checked out their podcast, please do so. Uh, we had always said this on previous podcasts, one of our highlights of that was the conversation around under the skin.
2: Oh, uh, yeah? Oh, fantastic.
1: uh, Which was... Definitely something that attracted me to their podcast. It's one of my favorite films of this decade, and that has not been shaken yet. On to our recommendations. So, this is where we will tell you what we've been watching on various platforms. Not all of them will be available internationally, but certainly some of the ones that I'm talking about will be available on the UK versions of these platforms. So, in terms of Netflix, I want to recommend a film, The Witch, uh, which is a film from 2015, directed by Robert Eggers, debuted direction of this film and it is an occult horror mixed with the historical drama and a nightmare folktale and this is about a woman who is um exiled into the wilderness in 17th century england she's a young girl and her family becomes a very much mistrusting of her and throughout the narrative uh, there is um some illusion that she may or may not be involved in the occult and uh there are various things that happen to her family members uh, throughout the film and it kind of leaves you on tenderhooks all the way through have you seen this one carrie lynn
2: i have actually yeah it was i wasn't expecting to like it as much as i did just based on the trailer it struck me as being very uh realist in terms of how it portrayed uh early pioneer life i can't remember now what year it's set and how that's related to the salem witch trials oh, yeah. but it's yeah it's that kind of atmosphere you know you have these puritans the family is really isolated as a lot of families were they had they were out on their land and they were you know at least a a day's ride away from other people and so it's just this family and so you get a bit of this like cabin fever people are going stir crazy because it's just them and um, you know you think that you hear a ghost in the forest again because it's just you and your fears can get larger than life the actress just does such a fantastic job and it's just there's something creepy about Puritans for me so <laughs> is this going back to your atheism? <laughs> maybe I think so yeah I've got some some deep bitterness against some old uh, I actually have some Puritans in my, um, my American ancestry and I just find them intensely creepy. Like they are the evilest people in the world. And this movie manages to uh, capitalize on that in a, for the horror genre. And I just, uh, it was done so well.
1: I think it would be a great um, uh, sister film to *The Girl with All the Gifts*, where you have got this young female character uh, there being mistrusted all the way through the film yeah. by a, a group of people of uh, seemingly being bastions of society. Uh, and that's the, *The Witch* on Netflix. Carrie Lynn, your pick for Netflix.
2: I watched I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which is written and directed by Macon Blair. And um, if I recall, he really hasn't done much else. So he managed to hit this one out of the park, though. It was such a fun movie. Oh, shoot. I forget now who plays who plays the male character. I didn't write down the actors names. But um
1: it's uh, Frodo uh, your boy yeah Frodo. okay
2: I was yeah um, and so uh, so he and uh, he and the female lead they just they start on this really quirky and unpredictable friendship um, and they come together because she has her house broken into and so it's it turns kind of into this revenge fantasy film after she goes to the police and discovers that you know they're not going to do anything she files her report and they're just like Yeah, that's it. Sorry, lady. Like, I know it was your grandma's china that had a lot of meaning to you, but that's it. And she gets really frustrated and. It recruits this friend of hers that she just met, this neighbor guy, who's who's this heavy metal loving weirdo with these thick glasses and a rat tail hair (laughs) and he's listening to heavy metal music outside and and he but but he has this really soft side and so he really like wants her to get her stuff back and wants to help her, you know, do this. And so they team up and they just have a bunch of wild things happen after that. It's so much fun. It is I
1: really liked it it is i've really loved this film as well uh, melanie linsky in the lead role there thank you for that film I, I love her work in heavenly creatures uh with kate winslet as well one of peter jackson's early films brilliant lead in that. And, and once again i i would like to see more of melanie linsky on screen mm-hmm. um that is uh, a netflix original i don't feel at home in this world anymore uh written directed by uh, mac and blair for amazon prime uk i, I have a, a, a slightly weird film I, I caught this a few weeks ago that i'd been meaning to to watch, you could say it's uh, in with the grey or silver pound sort of crowd, the older audience. The Sense of an Ending, uh, directed by Ritesh bartra who uh, did a film called The Lunchbox a few years ago, uh, an Indian film but not a Bollywood film, so a film set in India with Irfan Khan. This time, uh, it's an English-based story uh, based on a, a novel, uh, starring. Jim Broadbent as a divorced and retired uh, reclusive and he's living a quiet life. He has a daughter and uh, one day he learns that his the mother uh, of his university girlfriend Veronica uh, left in her will a diary kept by his best friend. It's up to him to decode his past and it's all about recalling your past and what you thought happened but actually what you did was a completely different thing and it's about remembering the past as well and as you're coming to the end of your life you may have thought that things happened in certain ways but actual fact it was your imagination or the perhaps the preferable way in which you'd like to remember things that actually happened in your past and this character believed that he uh dealt with this relationship in a certain manner but it turns out it may not have been that way and this uh this character comes back to to haunt him it's uh it's a it's a real really good film and it's certainly uh, as I, as i'm getting older things that i'm recalling are not quite what i thought they were when certainly when i meet up with friends i do you recall we did this and that and he's like no that didn't happen that way actually it happened like this um so yeah it's a good way of looking back on yourself for the bbc iplayer I have uh, Short Term 12, uh, a film that came out a few years ago, starring Brie Larson, uh, Rami Malek. And Lakeith Stanfield is a great actor, and he's really going places. And there's a film coming out later on this year called Sorry to Bother You, which is getting great buzz at some of the festivals and has taken some of the awards. I believe it was Sundance and South by Southwest, which it screened. I'm really, really looking forward to that. He's also in the series Atlanta, written by Donald Glover. And uh, I just really, really liked his uh, much younger quieter character it's all about a a counselor played by Brie Larson at a California care unit uh, for at-risk teens and one of the teenagers is played by Lakeith Stanfield and it is about dealing young people trying to look after young people as well and who are not quite adults and it's a real good contrast there directed by Destin Cretton that's our recommendations for This week. I hope that uh, you can go away and look at some of those. They will also be in the notes below the podcast as well. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carrie Lynn. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to have some in-depth conversation around the girl with all the gifts I hope you've enjoyed your time today we've certainly spoken at length to this film and I hope it's it's got to the bottom of what you wanted to get across in terms of, of that film where can people find you and, and what do you do and, and you know where can people contact you
2: uh, yeah it's easiest to reach me on Twitter uh, so I'm at at Carrie Linland, C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D I'm fairly active on Twitter so that's a good place but I also encourage you to check out the new books network um that's just newbooksnetwork.com and you'll see there that there's like whew, 30 maybe channels of topics of of books that you can check out and my uh my channel there of course is new books in secularism so i would encourage you to check that out there is, is there any sort of
1: books at the moment that you would recommend to anyone that sort of making making noise at the moment in the secular literary world
2: actually i was really excited recently to have michael Shermer on the show uh to discuss his book heavens on earth the scientific search for the afterlife immortality and utopia uh he's kind of a big name in um in the atheist circles uh you might see him doing an interview alongside richard dawkins like that kind of level of stuff i was yeah, I was really excited to get somebody on. He was very professional, very quick. And his book is really fascinating. It's um, kind of about the history of uh, people's ideas of heaven, basically. And he also looks at kind of the biological side of what happens to our brains after we die, um, both biologically and also psychologically. Um, so really fascinating stuff. It was a really good episode. That sounds awesome. So just to reiterate, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm at Carrie Lynn Land. And on Twitter and if you google new books network or new books in secular you'll find the website there or if you google that or search that in your podcatcher uh, it'll come up there as well
1: so awesome thank you and also to anyone out there who wants to get in contact with us you can get in contact with us in the usual ways facebook.com forward slash film seekers we post content on there now and again you get interactive, let us know what you've seen let us know what you think. You can also tweet us at filmseekers you can drop us an email hello at filmseekers dot com and if you're into photos and stuff then we're also on instagram uh, film seekers all one word i want to say thank you very much to bow from big Numb for the music today it came comes from the album from monkey came man from man came me and that album is available from all good mp3 sites and itunes i also want to thank all the distributors as well who have given up their clips from their various films and allowed us to play them on the podcast today we're going to finish on our final line as usual. And this one comes from an interesting place. So this is the 1994 film, The Crow, starring Brandon Lee. Um, I haven't seen this one since it came out. I think I was a little bit too young to actually go and watch it in cinema. But I managed to sneak a peek at this one. Carolyn, you've seen this film?
2: It was my favourite movie when I was 17. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: oh wow and do um, you know what? quite a formative film from a very dark film one of the first real dark films that had sort of a, a ambiguity around the, 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 the positive nature of the lead character so the, the, the film involves a very young girl and she kind of hangs around with this lead character after he's killed and supposedly killed and comes back from the afterlife and uh, the character is called Sarah and she's played by Rochelle Davis and the last line
2: is if the people we love are stolen from us The way to have them live on is to never stop loving them. Buildings burn, people die, but real love is forever.
1: Thank you very much for listening today. And we (laughs) will join you on the next podcast, which we will be talking about Celine Sciamma's girlhood. Thank you very much, Carrie Lynn. Say goodbye to everyone.
2: Thank you so much. Bye, guys. This episode
0: has ended, but your film journey doesn't have to. Head over to filmseekers.com where you'll find more reviews, ideas, and news. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Why not connect with us and let us be part of your film seeking adventure?